Chapter 14 of The Necessity of Atheism Christianity and War Instead of diminishing the number of wars, ecclesiastical influence has actually and very seriously increased it. We may look in vain for any period since Constantine in which the clergy as a body exerted themselves to repress the military spirit, or to prevent or abridge a particular war, with an energy at all comparable to that which they displayed in stimulating the fanaticism of the Crusades, in producing the atrocious massacres of the Albigenses, in embittering the religious contests that followed the Reformation. Lecky. Any institution that can sanction war is the most immoral institution that the mind of man can imagine. That an institution which claims to have under its guidance the moral activity of this earth has instituted and condoned war is a known historical fact. That the church has blessed the banners of opposing factions and has gloried in the butchering of innocent heretics, no manner of present disregard for the facts and apology can refute and redeem. The religious and civil wars, the massacre of the Albigenses and other sects, the massacre of St. Bartholomew, are still alive in the memories of historians and still rankle. The Crusades were a bloody blot in the none too peaceful times of the Middle Ages. Christianity hurled itself at Mohammedanism in expedition after expedition for nearly three centuries. Millions of men perished in battle, hunger, and disease and every atrocity the imagination can conceive of disgraced the warriors of the cross. When one crusade failed, a papal bull instigated the next. Taxes were imposed to defray the expenses, and Europe was so drained of men and money that it was threatened with social bankruptcy and annihilation. The Inquisition, between 1481 and 1808, had punished 340,000 persons, and of these, nearly 32,000 had been burnt. This was the result of the declaration that the Inquisition is an urgent necessity in view of the unbelief of the present age. The Church forgot to mention the vast amount of wealth that accrued to her by these means. But we need not turn to the dead ages for material, for the present still firmly holds its war memories. Armenians massacred by Turks and Kurds, Christians slaughtered by Mohammedans, is a horror as hideous in the name of religion as in the name of war. The persecution of Jews by Christians in the name of Christ is diabolical. The atrocities inflicted on Christian Belgium by Christian Germany stains the Teuton's hand as red as the Turk's but with a difference. The Teuton outraged his own holy woman, despoiled and murdered his own sisters in Christ, while the Mohammedan hordes perpetrated their nameless infamies on those whom they believed to be the imps of Satan. Mercifully, call these things the logical crimes of a state of war. Then we must admit that savagery still is more powerful than religion and we must concede that no religion so far has achieved the success that one might reasonably expect of a divine institution. Bell, Woman from Bondage to Freedom The World War proved the utter worthlessness of Christianity as a civilizing force. 
the nations engaged were not fighting non-Christians. Germany, Austria, Russia, England, Belgium, Serbia, Italy, and the United States are all Christian nations. They all worship the same God. They are all brothers in Christ. But that did not prevent their cutting each other's throats on the battlefield. Their common religious belief did not render the war less bitter, nor less bloodthirsty. Is it not a fact that if the Christian nations of the world would only live at peace together, war would be impossible? Neither Mohammedan nations nor Japan could threaten. When the Christian speaks of the brotherhood of man, he means a brotherhood of believers only. What kind of brotherhood did Christians bestow on Jews or heretics in the Middle Ages? Was it the brotherhood of man that Christianity bestowed on the conquered Mexican and Peruvian nations? and on the Indians of our own country? If Christianity had expended as much energy in teaching its adherents the fundamentals of a sane social life as it did to prepare mankind for a mythical life in heaven, civilization would be today greatly in advance of where it is. Does anyone believe that Jew, Mohammedan, Catholic, and Protestant can long live in peace together? Common social needs bring mankind together, but religion drives them apart. There can never be a lasting peace until the myth of God is dispelled forever from the minds of men. Then and then only can the adjustment between economic and political forces lead to a permanent peace. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of The Necessity of Atheism Christianity and Slavery Nothing during the American struggle against the slave system did more to wean religious and God-fearing men and women from the old interpretation of Scripture than the use of it to justify slavery. Andrew Dickinson White The Christian Church has had the audacity in modern times to proclaim that it had abolished slavery and the slave trade. It is difficult to understand how any righteous man could make that contention, remembering that it was not until the middle of the 19th century that slavery became illegal in Christian countries, with one exception, Abyssinia, the oldest of the Christian countries, which still maintains slavery. In our own country, a nation had to be embroiled in a civil war before slavery could be abolished. Abolished by Christianity in the 19th century, when Christianity has been dominant in most civilized countries since the 3rd century, and when the traffic in human flesh flourished right through those centuries in which Christianity was most powerful. A reference to the facts show that this claim is as spurious as many others which the ecclesiastics have boldly affirmed throughout the ages. For not only is this contrary to the truth, but it is an undeniable fact that it was only by the aid and sanction of the theological forces that slavery was able to degrade our civilization as long as it did. On referring to that legend which has been the source of most of our suffering and inhumanity, the Bible, a direct sanction for slavery is given in the Old Testament. Leviticus 25 gives explicit instructions as to where and from whom slaves should be bought, 
and sanctions the repulsive feature of separation of the slave from his family. Leviticus 27 gives the price of human beings. The Quran, which the Christians look upon as a ridiculous smattering of utterances of a spurious prophet, sets a superior example to the Christian divine revelations. God hath ordained that your brothers should be your slaves. Therefore, let him whom God hath ordained to be the slave of his brother, his brother must give him of the clothes wherewith he clotheth himself, and not order him to do anything beyond his power. A man who ill-treats his slave will not enter paradise. Whoever is the cause of separation between mother and child, by selling and giving, God will separate him from his friends on the day of resurrection. The New Testament follows the Old Testament, and there is nowhere to be found in its contents anything to suggest the elimination of this practice. Jesus did not condemn this practice, but accepted slavery, as he accepted most institutions about him, and all superstitions. The teachings of Paul on the question of slavery are clear and explicit. Pope Leo, in his letter of 1888 to the Bishop of Brazil, remarks, when amid the slave multitude whom she has numbered among her children, some led astray by some hope of liberty, have had recourse to violence and sedition, the church has always condemned these unlawful efforts, and through her ministers has applied the remedy of patience. St. Peter was addressing himself especially to the slaves when he wrote, For this is thankworthy, if for conscience towards God a man endures sorrows, suffering wrongfully. The church certainly saw nothing wrong with slavery when she preached patience to her slaves. It did not condemn slavery, but condemned the slaves for revolting. This in 1888. In the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics is found, There is no explicit condemnation in the teaching of our Lord, it remains true that the abolitionist could point to no one text in the Gospels in defense of his position, while those who defended slavery could appeal at any rate to the letter of Scripture. It is true that slavery existed under pagan civilization, but there it represented a phase of social development, while Christian slavery stood for a deliberate retrogression in social life. It was Seneca who said, Live gently and kindly with your slave, and admit him to conversation with you, to counsel with you, and to share in your meals. Think of what would have occurred if one of our philosophers had admonished a slaveholding Christian in the above manner. We are apt to think of the ancient slave as being identical with the miserable and degraded being that disgraced Christian countries less than a century ago. This, however, is far from the truth. The Roman slave did not, of necessity, lack education. Slaves were to be found who were doctors, writers, poets, philosophers, and moralists. Plautus, Phaedrus, Terence, Epictetus were slaves. Slaves were the intimates of men of all stations of life, even the emperor. Certainly it never dawned on the Roman mind to prohibit education to the slave. That was left for the Christian world, and almost within our own time. For a good account of the close association of Christianity with slavery, see 
Christianity, Slavery, and Labor, Chapman Cohen. In Rome, the slave kept his individuality, and outwardly there was no distinction in color and clothing. There was very little sound barrier between the slave and the freeman. The slave attended the same games as the freeman, participated in the affairs of the municipality, and attended the same college. The ancients kept the bodies of their slaves in bondage, but they placed no restraint upon the mind, and no check upon his education. It has even been said that the slave class of antiquity really corresponded to our free laboring class. It is also well known that a well-conducted slave, by his own earnings, was able to purchase his freedom in the course of a few years. There can be no comparison, therefore, between pagan and Christian slavery, except to the detriment of the latter. The Christian slave trade represents one of the most frightful and systematic brutalities the world has ever known. The contrast between the pagan and Christian slavery is even more marked when the dependence of the Christian slave upon the good nature of his master is considered. Compare this with the decrees of the Roman emperors. Masters were prohibited sending their slaves into the arena without a judicial sentence. Claudius punished as a murderer any master who killed his slave. Nero appointed judges to hear the complaints of slaves as to ill-treatment or insufficient feeding. Domitian forbade the mutilation of slaves. Hadrian forbade the selling of slaves to gladiators, destroyed private prisons for them, and ordered that they who were proved to have ill-treated their slaves be forced to sell them. Caracalla forbade the selling of children into slavery. All that need to be added to this is that the later Christian slavery represented a distinct retrogression, deliberately revived from motives of sheer cupidity, and accompanied by more revolting features than the slavery of ancient times. Chapman Cohen In the history of ethics within organized Christianity is recorded, The Church, as such, never contemplated doing away with slavery as such, even though Stoicism had denounced it as contra mundum. Nowhere does the early church condemn slavery as an institution. Kindness to the slave is frequently recommended, but this was done quite as forcibly and upon a much broader ground by the pagan writers. It would be indeed nearer the truth to say that the Christians who wrote in favor of the mitigation of the lot of the slave were far more indebted to pagans than to Christian influence. The church itself owned many slaves, advised its adherents to will their slaves to her, and was the last to liberate the slaves which she owned. Yet the apologists for the church would have us believe that she was instrumental in the destruction of slavery when it is a fact that there is nowhere a clear condemnation of slavery on the part of the church. H. C. Lee, in his Studies of the Church History, says, The church held many slaves, and while their treatment was in general sufficiently humane to cause the number to grow by voluntary accretions, yet it had no scruple to assert vigorously their claim to ownership. When the papal church granted a slave to a monastery, 
the dread anathema involving eternal perdition was pronounced against anyone daring to interfere with the gift and those who were appointed to take charge of the lands and farms of the church were especially instructed that it was part of their duty to pursue and recapture fugitive bondsmen it must not be assumed that the catholic church was the only ecclesiastical body to condone slavery or that it was only the traffic in black slaves that flourished a few hundred years ago in the seventeenth century thousands of irish men women and children were seized by the order or under the license of the english government and sold as slaves for use in the west indies in the calendar of state papers under various dates between sixteen fifty three to sixteen fifty six the following entries occur for a license to sir john clotworthy to transport to america five hundred natural irishmen a slave dealer named schlick is granted a license to take four hundred children from ireland for new england and virginia later a hundred irish girls and a like number of youths are sold to the planters in jamaica had the church been against slavery it would have branded it as a wrong and have set the example of liberating its own slaves it did neither nay the church not only held slaves itself not only protected others who held slaves but it thundered against all who should despoil its property by selling or liberating slaves belonging to the church the whole history of the christian church shows that it has never felt itself called upon to fight any sound institution no matter what its character so long as it favored the church slavery and serfdom war piracy child labor have all been in turn sanctioned chapman cohen christianity slavery and labor in abyssinia the influence of christianity has been dominant for a longer period of time than anywhere else in the world the population of abyssinia is at least ten million and of this population not less than one-fifth probably more are slaves in 1929, Lady Kathleen Simon published her book entitled Slavery, dealing with the slave trade of the world. In this work, it is pointed out that slave-owning is an integral part of the religion of the country, and that opposition to the abolition of slavery comes principally from the priesthood, which considers itself the guardian of the Mosaic law, and regards slavery as an institution ordered by Jehovah slave raids are constant in this country and are accompanied by the greatest brutality and cruelty vast areas are depopulated by these raids and even at this date gangs of slaves may be seen by travelers with the dead and dying bodies of those that have fallen strewn along the roadside the slave trade in abyssinia is open its horrors are well known and it is supported by the christian church of the country such is slavery in the most christian country in the world today the country which has the longest christian history of any nation in the world its existence helps us to realize the value of the statement that the power of christianity in the world destroyed the slave trade slavery flourishes in the oldest of christian countries in the world backed up by the church the old bible and the new testament 
It has all the horrors, all the brutalities, all the degradations of the slave trade at its worst. Such is Christian Abyssinia. And such, but for the saving grace of secular civilization, would be the rest of the world. Chapman Cohen the slave system that arose in Christian times, created by and continued by Christians in the most Christian of countries, provides the final and unanswerable indictment of the Christian church. Slavery was unknown to the Africans until it was introduced by the Christian Portuguese. In 1517, the Spaniards began to ship Negro slaves to Hispaniola, Cuba, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico. John Hawkins was the first Englishman of note to engage in the traffic, and Queen Elizabeth loaned this virtuous and pious gentleman the ship Jesus. English companies were licensed to engage in this trade, and during the reign of William and Mary, it was thrown open to all. Between 1680 and 1700, it has been said that 140,000 Negroes were imported by the English African Company, and about 160,000 more by private traders. Between 1700 and 1786, as many as 610,000 were transported to Jamaica alone. In the hundred years ending 1776, the English carried into the Spanish, French, and English colonies three million slaves. The cruelty experienced by these human cargoes on their transportation defies description. The chaining, the branding, the mutilation, the close quarters, the deaths by suffocation and disease are a sterling example of man's inhumanity to man when his conscience is relieved by finding support of his inhumane actions sanctioned in that most holy of holies, the Bible. Exclusive of the slaves who died before leaving Africa, not more than fifty out of a hundred lived to work on the plantations. Ingram's History of Slavery calculates that, although between 1690 and 1820 no less than 800,000 Negroes had been imported to Jamaica, yet at the latter date only 340,000 were on the island. Slavery in America received the same sanction by the religionists which it received on the continent. George Whitefield, the great Methodist preacher, was an earnest supporter of slavery. When the importation of slaves finally ceased, the states began the new industry of breeding slaves. The leading state for this breeding, and the one which contained the largest number of stud farms, was Virginia. Lord Macaulay, in a speech delivered before the House of Commons on February 26, 1845, said, The slave states of the Union are of two classes, the breeding states, where the human beast of burden increases and multiplies and becomes strong for labor, and the sugar and cotton states, to which these beasts of burden are sent to be worked to death. Bad enough it is that civilized man should sail to an uncivilized quarter of the world where slavery existed, should buy wretched barbarians, and should carry them away to labor in a distant land. Bad enough. But that a civilized man, a baptized man, a man proud of being a citizen of a free state, a man frequenting a Christian church, 
should breed slaves for exportation, and if the whole horrible truth must be told, should even beget slaves for exportation, should see children, sometimes his own children, gambling from infancy, should watch their growth, should become familiar with their faces, and should sell them for four hundred or five hundred dollars a head, and send them to lead in a remote country a life which is a lingering death, a life about which the best thing that can be said is that it is sure to be short, this does, I own, excite a horror exceeding even the horror excited by that slave trade which is the curse of the African coast. And mark, I am speaking of a trade as regular as the trade in pigs between Dublin and Liverpool, or as the trade in coals between the Tyne and the Thames. It has been estimated that the members and ministers of the Orthodox churches in the South owned no less than 660,000 slaves. Thomas Paine, in 1775, when he wrote his article on Justice and Humanity, was the first to demand emancipation in a lucid manner. The campaign for liberation of the slaves was therefore inaugurated by a free thinker and triumphantly closed by another freethinker, Abraham Lincoln. In this manner did the church abolish slavery. With characteristic disregard for the truth, the religionists have laid claim to Lincoln, which claim has been amply refuted. But we are still awaiting the church's claim to Paine as one of her devotees. And truly, the case against Christianity is plain and damning. Never during the whole of its history has it spoken in a clear voice against slavery. Always, as we have seen, its chief supporters have been pronounced believers. They have cited religious teaching in its defense. They have used all the power of the church for its maintenance. Naturally, in a world in which the vast majority are professing Christians, believers are to be found on the side of humanity and justice. But to that the reply is plain. Men are human before they are Christians. Both history and experience point to the constant lesson of the many cases in which the claims of a developing humanity override those of an incalculated religious teaching. But the damning fact against Christianity is not that it found slavery here when it arrived and accepted it as a settled institution, not even that it plainly taught in its sacred books, but that it deliberately created a new form of slavery, and for hundreds of years invested in it with a brutality greater than that which existed centuries before. A religion which could tolerate this slavery, argue for it, and fight for it, cannot by any stretch of reasoning be credited with an influence in forwarding emancipation. Christianity no more abolished slavery than it abolished witchcraft, the belief in demonism, or punishment for heresy. It was the growing moral and social sense of mankind that compelled Christians and Christianity to give up these and other things. Chapman Cohen, Christianity, Slavery, and Labor End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of the necessity of atheism christianity and labor the mortgage which the peasant has on heavenly property guarantees the mortgage of the bourgeois on the farms
Marx. The same Christ, the same Buddha, the same Isaiah, can stand at once for capitalism and communism, for liberty and slavery, for peace and war, for whatever opposed or clashing ideals you will. For the life and the power of a church is in the persistent identity of its symbols and properties. Meanings change anyhow, but things endure. The rock upon which a church is founded is not the rock of God. The rock upon which a church is founded is the wealth of men. Horace M. Callan Why Religion? During the Middle Ages, the heads of the church exercised all the rights of a feudal lord, and were even more tenacious of their privileges. The serfs were prohibited from migrating from one part of the country to another. The daughter of a serf could not marry without the consent of the lord, who frequently demanded payment for permission, or, worse still, the infamous right of the first knight. The serf was bonded in a hundred different ways, and it is significant of the esteem in which the church was held that in every peasant revolt which occurred there was always a direct attack on the church. Professor Thorold Rogers, writing of the twelfth century, gives the following picture of the poorer classes. The houses of these villagers were mean and dirty. Brickmaking was a lost art. Stone was found only in a few places. The wood fire was on a hob of clay. Chimneys were unknown, except in castles and manor houses, and the smoke escaped through the door or whatever other aperture it could find. The floor of the homestead was filthy enough, but the surroundings were filthier still. Close by the door stood the mixen, a collection of every abomination, streams from which, in rainy weather, fertilized the lower meadows, generally the lord's pasture, and polluted the stream. The house of the peasant cottager was poorer still. Most of them were probably built of posts wattled and plastered with clay or mud, with an upper story of poles reached by a ladder. What the lord took he held by right of force. What the church had, it held by force of cunning. And as in the long run the cunning of the church was more powerful than the force of the robber lord, the priesthood grew in riches until its wealth became a threat to the whole of the community. In England, in the thirteenth century, the clergy numbered one in fifty-two of the population, and the possessions of the church included a third of the land of England. No opportunity was lost by the church to drain money from the people, whether they were rich or poor. The trade done in candles and sales of indulgences brought in large sums of money, and there were continuous disputes between the clergy and the king and the pope as to the divisions of the spoil. The picture of the church watching over the poor, sheltering them from wrong, tending them in sickness and relieving them in their poverty, will not do. It is totally without historic foundation. When the poor revolted, and apart from the great revolts there were many small and local outbreaks, the anger of the poor was directed as much against the church as it was against the nobles. Chapman Cohen, Christianity, Slavery, and Labor
when the downtrodden masses of Spain, Mexico, and Russia revolted against the tyranny which had held them in the slough of medieval degradation, they likewise in recent times proved that they realized that their submission was as much caused by the church, allied as it was with the state, as by the government itself. The church did attend the sick, but its trade was in the miracle cures and prayers, and so they very much resembled men hawking their own goods and attending to their own business. And there is the plain historic fact that in defense of its miracle cures it did what it could to obstruct the growth of both medical and sanitary science. It did give alms, but these consisted but a small part of what it had previously taken. Through all the changes of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, it is impossible to detect anxiety on the part of the churches, Roman Catholic or Protestant, to better the status of, or improve the condition of, the working classes. Whatever improvements may have come about, and they were few enough, came independently of Christianity, organized or unorganized. Controversies about religious matters might and did grow more acute. Controversies about bettering the position of the working classes only began with the breaking down of Christianity. And when, as in Germany, there occurred a peasant's revolt, and the peasants appealed to Luther for assistance, he wrote, after exhorting the peasants to resignation, to the nobles, A rebel is outlawed of God and Kaiser. Therefore, who can and will first slaughter such a man does right well, since upon such a common rebel every man is alike the judge and executioner. Therefore, who can shall openly or secretly smite, slaughter, and stab, and hold that there is nothing more poisonous, more harmful, more devilish than a rebellious man. And in pre-revolutionary France, the church saw unmoved a state of affairs almost unimaginable, so far as the masses of the people were concerned, in their misery and demoralization. And this at a time when half of the land of France, in addition to palaces, chateaux, and other forms of wealth, were possessed by the nobility and clergy, and were practically free from taxation. A contemporary observer writes, Certain savage-looking beings, male and female, are seen in the country, black, livid, and sunburnt, and belonging to the soil which they dig and grub with invincible stubbornness. They stand erect, they display human lineaments, and seem capable of articulation. They are, in fact, men. They retire at night into their dens, where they live on black bread, water, and roots. They spare other human beings the trouble of sowing. In pre-revolutionary France, the clergy, counting monks and nuns, numbered in 1762 over 400,000, with total possessions estimated at 2,000 million pounds, producing an annual revenue of about 140 millions. The clergy were free from taxation, and the higher members of the order possessed all the rights and privileges of the feudal nobility. To the end, the church in France, as in our day, in pre-revolutionary Russia, remained the champion of privilege and misgovernment. In England, 
during the latter half of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, developed the English manufacturing system. Woman and child labor were common in both mines and factories. The regular working hours were from 5 a.m. to 8 p.m., with six full days' labor per week. One investigator remarks, It is a very common practice with the great populous parishes in London to bind children in large numbers to the proprietors of cotton mills in Lancashire and Yorkshire, at a distance of 200 miles. The children are sent off by wagon loads at a time, and are as much lost forever to their parents as if they were shipped off for the West Indies. The parishes that bind them, by procuring a settlement for the children at the end of forty days, get rid of them forever, and the poor children have not a human being in the world to whom they can look up for redress against the wrongs they have been exposed to from these wholesale dealers in them, whose object it is to get everything they can possibly wring from their excessive labor and fatigue. In the mines, conditions were still worse, and a report in 1842 states, Children are taken at the earliest ages, if only to be used as living and waving candlesticks, or to keep rats from a dinner. And it is in pits of the worst character, too, in which most female children are employed. It would appear from the practical returns obtained by the commissioner that about one-third of the persons employed in coal mines are under 18 years of age and that much more than one-third of this proportion are under thirteen years of age. In certain mines there was no distinction of sex so far as underground labor was concerned. The men worked entirely naked and were assisted by females of all ages, from girls of six years to women of twenty-one, who were quite naked down to the waist. But if oppression was rife, education at a low ebb, and misery prevalent, the religion of the people was receiving attention. The period was, in fact, one of revival in religion. The Wesleyan revival was in full swing, and evangelical Christianity was making great advances. Between 1799 and 1804, there were founded the British and Foreign Bible Society, the London Missionary Society, and the mission to the Jews. When the Education Bill of 1819 came before the House of Lords, out of 18 bishops who voted on the measure, 15 voted against it. Thus the religionists were most active during the period when a condition approximating white slavery existed. And why should this not have been so when the church is not interested in the social and economic status of its adherents during their existence on this planet, but is avowedly concerned with deluding its devotees into a mythical belief in a life hereafter? The greatest number of slaves and the greatest degradation of workers is to be found in those times and places where religious superstition is most powerful. In our own country, as well as in England, the labor movement has developed not merely outside the range of organized Christianity, but in the teeth of the bitterest opposition to it. Christianity, since it came into power, has always preached to the poor in defense of the privileges and possessions of the rich. 
In a recent publication by Jerome Davis, which is entitled, Labor Speaks for Itself on Religion, the author has compiled the opinions of labor leaders in the United States, Canada, Great Britain, Russia, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Mexico, China, Austria, Australia, Belgium, and Japan. It is a terrific indictment by labor against organized religion. The author tells us, Here is labor speaking for itself, and in the by and large it feels that the church has not understood or helped it to secure justice. The majority believe that the church has a capitalistic bias. It is a class institution for the upper and middle classes. This is putting the matter rather mildly when one considers their grievances expressed in their own words. Again, Jerome Davis asks, Is it possible that our church leaders are to some extent blinded by current conventional standards? Are they so busy sharing the wealth of the prosperous with others in spiritual quests that they fail to see some areas of desperate social need? Do they, to some degree, unconsciously exchange the gift of prophecy for yearly budgets and business boards? James H. Maurer, the president of the Pennsylvania Federation of Labor, speaks for labor, and the title of his subject is, Has the Church Betrayed Labor? Mr. Maurer's opinion follows. A worker, living from hand to mouth, and lucky if he is not hopelessly in debt besides, working at trip-hammer speed when he has work, with no security against enforced idleness, sickness, and old age, can hardly be expected to become deeply interested in, or a very enthusiastic listener to, sermons about Lot's disobedient wife, who, because she looked back, was turned into a pillar of salt. He is far more concerned about his own overworked and perhaps underfed wife, who due to the strain of trying to raise his family on a meager income that permits of no rest or proper medical care, is slowly but surely turning into a corpse. To go to a church and listen to a sermon about the sublimeness of being humble and meek, that no matter how desperate the struggle to live may be, one should be contented and not envy the more fortunate, because God in his infinite wisdom has ordained that there shall be rich and poor, and that no matter how heavy one's burdens on this earth, one should bear them meekly and look for reward in the world to come, and remember that God loves the poor. Such sermons naturally sound pleasing to the ears of the wealthy listeners, and the usual reward is a shower of gold and hearty congratulations by the sleek and well-fed members of the congregation. But to an intelligent worker, such sermons sound like capitalistic propaganda upon which he is constantly being fed by every labor-exploiting concern in the country, and quite naturally he tries to avoid getting an extra dose of the same kind of buncombe on Sunday. In churches, men have listened for nearly two thousand years to lessons and sermons about the brotherhood of man, the forging of swords of war into plowshares of peace. Man is his brother's helper. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Thou shalt not kill. We are taught to say the Lord's Prayer, and ask for heaven on earth. And yet, at every war opportunity, with a very few noble exceptions, 
the church, at the command of the warlords, has scrapped its peace sentiments and turned its back to the Prince of Peace and Heaven on Earth, and has shouted itself hoarse for hell on Earth. And then the spokesmen of the churches of each nation at war have had the impudence to pray to a just God and ask him to play favorites, to use his infinite power on their side, and join in the mad slaughter of his own beloved children. And those slaughtered are the workers, and their folks at home naturally wonder why the one big international peace organization on earth, the church, at the crack of the war demon's whip, deserts its principles of thou shalt not kill, and peace on earth, and helps to stampede its followers in the very opposite direction. Mr. Morer points out that labor's struggle to have a federal child labor amendment to the Constitution ratified by the various state legislatures, and to have such legislation enacted as the workmen's compensation laws, mothers' pensions, and old age pensions, received no support from the clergy. He concludes by citing this occurrence. For a good illustration of what the church is sometimes guilty of, let us take a glimpse at what happened in Detroit during the month of October 1926, when the American Federation of Labor was holding its annual convention there. Nearly every church in Detroit sent invitations to prominent labor officials to speak in their churches before Bible classes, Sunday schools, and young men's Christian associations. Most of the invitations were accepted by the labor officials, including President Green of the AF of L. As soon as the big employers learned about the program, they not only frowned upon the idea of allowing their sacred temples to be contaminated with representatives of the working class, but put both feet down as hard as they could on the proposition. Did the clergymen stand firm when men with dollars talked? To their everlasting shame, they did not. Ninety-five percent of them bowed to the will of mammon, and the representatives of labor were barred from the sacred temples erected in the name of God and the lowly Nazarene, proving conclusively to the minds of the average citizen who controls the churches and whom they serve. Small wonder that so many workers have a poor opinion of the church, and that so many pews are empty. J. B. S. Hardman, the editor of The Advance, the official journal of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, gives us his opinion regarding the religion of labor. It lulls the social underdog with a sham consolation for the oppression and exploitation which are his lot, and furnishes the exploiter and oppressor with graceful distraction and absolution from his daily practice and meanness. This is the actual basis of church activity today. The religion of labor is godless, for it seeks to restore the divinity of man. James P. Thompson, the national organizer of the industrial workers of the world, heads his article for Jerome Davis, Religion is the Negation of the Truth, and in his militant manner proclaims, this organization designed to praise God and help him run the universe is known as the church. The established church has always been on the side of the rich and powerful. Its robed representatives, pretending to be godlike and favorites of God, having special influence with him, 
have ever functioned as the moral police agents of the ruling classes. At one time or another, they have asked God to bless nearly everything, from the slave driver's lash to murderous wars. Thus they strive to extend the blessings of God to the infamies of men. Today, under capitalism, they teach the working class the doctrine of humility, tell them that if they get a slap on one cheek, to turn the other, and blessed are the poor. They tell us to bear the cross and wear the crown, that we will get back in the next world what is stolen from us in this. In other words, they try to chloroform us with stories of heaven, while the robbers plunder the world. For this support, the ruling classes donate liberally to the church. The organized robbers and organized beggars support each other. James P. Noonan, Vice President of the American Federation of Labor, asks a pertinent question. Labor observes an increasing tendency on the part of the church to regulate what man may eat, drink, or smoke, where and how he shall spend his Sundays, the character and kind of amusements he may participate in, and various other activities, many of which seem more or less trivial, all of which leads the average worker to ponder rather seriously just why it is that the church can vigorously advocate and promote legislation seeking to curtail his liberty to enjoy, in his own way, the limited number of leisure hours at his disposal, and yet turn a deaf ear to the cry of tortured men, women, and children for relief from the curse of low wages, long hours, and scores of other industrial conditions and abuses which inevitably paved the way for numberless cases of moral turpitude. James S. Woodsworth, a former minister, speaking for the Canadian Labour Party, exclaims, The church, a class institution, what does the church do to help me and those like me? The church supported by the wealthy, yes, he who pays the piper calls the tune. The well-groomed parson, with his soft tones prophesying smooth things, well, I'm glad I'm not in his shoes. James Simpson, Secretary of the Canadian Labour Party, makes this statement. I found that the conditions which called for radical change, if the social and economic security of the people was going to be established, did not concern the church. As an institution, it was concerned in establishing an outlook upon life that would induce men to do the right. But if the right was not done, there was very little distinction drawn between the wrongdoer and the rightdoer. This lack of distinction did not apply so much to what were re regarded as moral indiscretions as it did to the larger failures to recognize man's relationship to man in the industrial and commercial activities of life. Labor thinks the church is insincere. It is an exceptional case for a minister to take a stand on the side of the workers, even when the issue between the employers and employees is a clear case of the former trying to enforce conditions upon the latter, which are unfair and inhuman. A. Fenner Brockway, the political secretary of the Independent Labor Party in England, writes in this manner, The hymns of the church are obsolete. The sermons are very rarely worth listening to. The forms of worship are unrelated to life. 
and such inspiration as comes from the devotion and beauty of some church services and buildings can be found ever more intimately and fully in the silences and beauty of nature. George Lansbury is another Englishman speaking for British labor, and he tells us that ordinary working people in Britain think very little about churches or about religion. Years ago, I was asked, why don't people accept religion? Why don't the masses go to church? I said then, as I say now, they, the masses, believe we Christians do not believe what we say we believe. Lenin, Trotsky, Lunakarsky, and Yaroslavsky are the speakers for Russian labor in Soviet Russia. Their attitude toward church and religion is well known. Arthur Crispian, president of the German Social Democratic Party, gives us his opinion. Men should not look upon this earth as a veil of tears and fly from rude realities to a world of phantasms. They should embrace the beauties of the world and realize and fulfill their social rights and duties. Our work lies in this world. As to the other, each is at liberty to decide according to his needs. Karl Menneke, another former minister, points out the attitude of German labor. For modern labor, the feeling that human life is first of all a matter of eternal life, and only secondarily a matter of this world, has been entirely lost. The high-strung eschatologic mood, or expectation of Jesus, has no sounding board in the masses of the proletariat of today. The Christian epoch in history is obviously on its way to extinction. The eschatological mood of Christianity has been a handicap, and still is, for the Christian community has difficulty finding an organic relationship to the creative problems of social life. Emmanuel Radl speaks of labor and the church in Czechoslovakia. In general, the churches play a far lesser part in our public life than in the United States. People are accustomed to speak of the churches as exploded institutions that are factors only among the uneducated classes. The churches are not measuring up in understanding and helping the poor. Robert Haberman, representing the Mexican Labor Party, gives a clear-cut summation of the tyranny that the clergy of that country yoked upon the masses and the retardation that it has produced. It furnishes striking and conclusive evidence of the harm that is done when the church and state are still integrally intertwined. There is no better example of the efforts of a reactionary clergy to keep the masses in poverty and ignorance than is this study of the church in modern Mexico. Mr. Haberman gives an account of the church activities in old Mexico and coming to the present. By the year 1854, the church had gained possession of about two-thirds of all the lands of Mexico, almost every bank, and every large business. The rest of the country was mortgaged to the church. Then came the revolution of 1854, led by Benito Juarez. It culminated in the Constitution of 1857, which secularized the schools and confiscated church property. All the churches were nationalized. Many of them were turned into schools, hospitals, and orphan asylums. Civil marriages were made obligatory. 
Pope Pius IX immediately issued a mandate against the Constitution and called upon all Catholics of Mexico to disobey it. Ever since then, the clergy has been fighting to regain its lost temporal power and wealth. It has been responsible for civil wars and for foreign intervention. Under the rule of Diaz, the Constitution was disregarded and the Church was permitted to regain most of its lost privileges. The church bells rang out at sunrise to call the peons out, with nothing more to eat than some tortillas and chili, to work all day long in the burning fields, until sunset when the church bells rang again to send them home to their mud huts. During their work they were beaten. On Sundays they were lashed and sent bleeding to mass. After church they had to do faenas, free work, for the church in the name of some saint or other, either to build a new church or to do some special work for the priests. It is no wonder, then, that after the revolution against Diaz, in many places, as soon as the peons were told they were free, their first act was to climb up the church steeples and smash the bells. After that, they rushed inside the churches and destroyed the statues and paintings of the saints. During the whole period of havoc and exploitation, not once was the voice of the church heard in behalf of the downtrodden. Illiteracy amounted to 86%, but the church helped the further enslavement of the workers. There was not a church ceremony, birth, marriage, or death that did not cost money. The worker had to borrow for each and the more he borrowed, the more closely he riveted upon himself the chains of peonage. The present conflict started in February 1926, when Archbishop José Mora del Rio, head of the church in Mexico, issued a statement in the press declaring war against the Constitution. Gideon Chen, speaking for Chinese labor, asserts, The Christian church in China brought up in a western greenhouse, with all its achievements and shortcomings, does not speak a language intelligible to the labor world. Karl Kautsky, the Austrian representative of labor, takes the attitude that the less labor as a whole has to do with church questions, and the less it is interested in the churches, the more successful will be its strife for emancipation. Otto Bauer, Another representative of Austrian labor makes the assertion, Capitalism forces the worker into the class struggle. In this class struggle he comes across the clergy and finds it the champion of his class adversary. The worker transfers his hate from the clergyman to religion itself, in whose name this clergyman is defending the social order of the middle classes. In Austria, the bourgeois parties take advantage of the belief of hundreds of thousands of proletarians in a lord in heaven to keep them in subjection to their earthly masters. Ernest H. Baker, the general secretary of the Australian Labour Party, holds forth in an article entitled, The Church is Weighed and Found Wanting. He is quite emphatic in his statements. The attitude of the labor movement in Australia to the church is one of supreme indifference. There is little or no point of contact between the two, 
and apparently neither considers the other in its activities and plan of campaign. The Church preaches the brotherhood of man. What brotherhood can exist between the wealthy receiver of interest, profit, and rent, and the struggling worker who sees his wife dragged down by poverty and overwork, and his children stunted and dwarfed physically and intellectually? Between the underworked and overfed commercial and industrial magnate, and the underfed, overworked denizen of the slums. The church is put on trial in the minds of men. They ask, what did the church do when we sought a living wage, shorter hours of work, safer working conditions, abolition of Sunday work, abolition of child labor? The answer is an almost entirely negative one. The few instances when church officials have helped are so conspicuous as to emphasize the general aloofness. In how many of the advanced ideas of our time has the church taken the lead? Is it not renowned for being a long way in the rear, rather than in the vanguard of progressive thought and action? It resents any challenge to its ideas, doctrines, or authority. Emile van der Velde the leader of the Belgian Labour Party, discusses the personal religious convictions of the labour leaders in France and Belgium. Today, as yesterday, the immense majority are atheists, old-fashioned materialists, or at least agnostics, to whom it would never occur to profess any creed, no matter how liberal it might be. Toyohiko Kogawa, the secretary of the Japan Labor Federation, says, Labor considers the church too otherworldly. It thinks it has no concern with the interests of labor, and that the church has lost her aim in this world and is looking up only into heaven. And labor forgets where to go, loses its sense of direction. So labor stops thinking about religion, and religion stops thinking about industry. The church has no principle of economics, and labor has no religious aspiration. The opinions of these men who are daily in contact with the problem of social justice the world over surely furnish a tremendous amount of information regarding both the unconcern of religion upon the furtherance of social justice and its actual negative and harmful influence. The devout Sherwood Eddy, a sincere and noble exponent of social justice, is forced to exclaim, but I saw that there would be much more opposition from professing Christians if I preached a gospel of social justice than ever there had been from so-called heathen nations in calling them to turn from their idols. Indeed, mammon is a much more potent idol. It is more cruel, smeared with more human blood, than Kali of Siva. They sacrifice goats to Kali, and we shudder. We sacrifice men to mammon, and justify our rights. In simple fact, though they are not worthy of mention, I have met with more opposition and misrepresentation ten times over in Christian America than I ever met in fifteen years in India, or in repeated visits to China, Turkey, or Russia. Sherwood Eddy, Religion and Social Justice Religious philosophy is slave philosophy. 
It teaches of a God who is personally interested in the individual and who will reward present misery with future bliss. The demoralizing effect of this infamous fraud is apparent everywhere. If a worker is constantly assailed with this nonsense from the pulpit, the result is the production in him of a mental as well as a physical slavery. It aggravates his mental inertia, and the force of repetition achieving its effects, he soon resigns himself to his present miserable state, drugged with the delusion of a better life in the hereafter. He believes that his destiny is predetermined by God, and that he will be rewarded in heaven for his sufferings on earth. What a marvelous opiate the ecclesiastics have been injecting into the minds of the masses. It is not to be wondered at, therefore, that capital has aided throughout the ages and has stood by religion. The irony of the situation lies in the fact that the slave will fight so valiantly for his tyrannical master, that the unscrupulous few who derive all the benefits can, like a malignant parasite, suck the lifeblood of its victims while their still living prey submits without a struggle. The worker, inebriated with his religious delusion, calmly allows his very substance to be the means through which his parasitic employer grows fat. That was the net result of Christianity, and of the activity of the Christian church in spreading abroad a spirit of kindness, humanity, and brotherhood. The coquetry of Christianity with labor within the last generation or two is only what one would expect. But it is clear that the one constant function of Christianity has been to encourage loyalty to existing institutions, no matter what their character, so long as they were not unfriendly to the church. Slavery and the oppression of labor continued while Christianity was at its strongest and wealthiest, its own wealth derived from the oppression it encouraged. Slavery died out when social and economic conditions rendered its continuance more and more difficult. And the conditions of labor improved when men ceased to talk of a providential order, of God's decree, and dismissed the evangelical narcotics served out by the church, and began to realize that social conditions were the products of understandable and modifiable natural forces. Chapman Cohen Christianity, Slavery, and Labor. End of chapter 16. Chapter 17 of The Necessity of Atheism, Religion and Woman. She was the first in the transgression, therefore keep her in subjection. Fierce is the dragon and cunning the asp, but woman has the malice of both. St. Gregory of Nazianum. Thou art the devil's gate, the betrayer of the tree, the first deserter of the divine law. Tertullian. What does it matter, whether it be in the person of mother or sister? We have to beware Eve in every woman. How much better two men could live and converse together than a man and a woman? St. Augustine. No gown worse becomes a woman than the desire to be wise. Luther The Bible and the Church have been the greatest stumbling blocks in the way of women's emancipation. 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton. It is noticed in most calculations of churchgoers that women have remained attached to the churches in a far higher proportion than men. The proportion of women in the churches is vastly greater than their proportion in the general population. Most of the men who still passively attend their churches do so under the pressure of professional interest or social or domestic influence. The degree of religiosity has always been associated with the free play of the emotions, and woman being more imaginative and emotional than man, it seems clear that this strong emotional factor in woman accounts, at least partly, for the greater proportion of women as churchgoers. And this, be it noted, lies not in any inherent inferiority in the mental makeup of a woman, but rather in the environmental influences that until very recently shaped women's education, in such a manner that it was little adapted to strengthening her reason, but rather calculated to enhance her emotionalism. Ecclesiastic historians have a notorious habit of viewing pre-Christian times for the single biased purpose of only stating the aspects of that civilization which they deemed inferior to that exerted by Christianity. Researchers have established fairly well the position of women in the Egyptian community of 4,000 years ago. It is no exaggeration to state that she was free and more honored in Egypt 4,000 years ago than she was in any country of the earth until only recently. Scholars assure us that, at a period which the Bible claims the earth was just coming into being, the Egyptian matron was mistress of her home, she inherited equally with her brothers, and had full control of her property. She could go where she liked and speak to whom she pleased. She could bring actions in the courts and even plead in the courts. The traditional advice to the husband was, Make glad her heart during the time that thou hast. Contrast this position of women in the community and society in general with the statement given in Mrs. E. Cady Stanton's History of Women's Suffrage in which she speaks of the status of the female of the species in Boston about the year 1850. Women could not hold any property either earned or inherited. If unmarried, she was obliged to place it in the hands of a trustee, to whose will she was subject. If she contemplated marriage and desired to call her property her own, she was forced by law to make a contract with her intended husband by which she gave up all title or claim to it. A woman, either married or unmarried, could hold no office or trust or power. She was not a person. She was not recognized as a citizen. She was not a factor in the human family. She was not a unit, but a zero in the sum of civilization. The status of a married woman was little better than that of a domestic servant. By the English common law, her husband was her lord and master. He had the sole custody of her person and of her minor children. He could punish her with a stick no bigger than his thumb, and she could not complain against him. The common law of the state, Massachusetts, held man and wife to be one person, but that person was the husband. He could by will deprive her of every part of his property, and also of what had been her own before marriage. He was the owner of all her real estate and earnings. The wife could make no contract and no will, 
nor, without her husband's consent, dispose of the legal interest of her real estate. She did not own a rag of her clothing. She had no personal rights, and could hardly call her soul her own. Her husband could steal her children, rob her of her clothing, neglect to support the family. She had no legal redress. If a wife earned money by her own labor, the husband could claim the pay as his share of the proceeds. With such a contrast in mind, it is indeed difficult to see where the truth of the assertion lies when it is stated that the status of women was indeed pitiful until Christianity exerted its influence for her betterment. And it is again curious to note that after a period of nearly 2,000 years of Christian influence, it was left for a skeptic such as Mrs. Stanton and her skeptical co-workers to bring about an amelioration of the degrading position of women in Christian society. The degrading picture of womankind as depicted in the Old Testament is well known to anyone who has glanced through this storehouse of mythology. It would be well for the multitude of devout female adherents of all creeds to take the time just a little of the time that they give to the plight of the poor, benighted heathen, and read some of the passages in the Old Testament dealing with their lot. The entire history of women under the administration of these heaven-made laws is a record of her serviture and humility. In the twenty-fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, we find the right of divorce given to the husband. Let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. The discarded wife must acquiesce to divine justice. But if the wife is displeased, is there any justice? Under no clause of the divorce law could the wife have a divorce on her part. None but the husband could put her asunder from him. In the twenty-second chapter of Deuteronomy is enacted the law for test of virginity, which states that if any man take a wife and is disappointed in her, and reports, I found her not a maid, then her father and mother shall bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city in the gate. The gynecological elders then go into a peeping Tom's conference, and if virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her with stones, that she die. Most probably the male partner in her crime was the first to cast the largest stone. The law laid down in the twelfth chapter of Leviticus may have been intended for hygienic purposes, but it is cruel and degrading to women, because it assumes that the parturient woman who has borne a female child is twice as impure as one who has borne a male child. The law of jealousies, as described in the fifth chapter of Numbers, is a good example of the mentality of the writers of this divine revelation. God, in his infinite wisdom, has caused to be written for him that to test whether a woman has laid carnally with another man, the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it in the water, the bitter water that causeth the curse, and shall cause the woman to drink the water. The divine revelation then continues with, If she be defiled, her belly shall swell and her thigh shall rot. 
But after all, God did not know that in the dust of the tabernacle sprawled the germs of dysentery, cholera, and tuberculosis, and a few other such mild infections. Or did the Divine Father know that even a self-respecting germ could not inhabit the filthy floor of the tabernacle? Consequently, it is not to be wondered at that in the good old days of the old-fashioned woman, the acme of hospitality was the giving of wife or daughter to a visitor for the night. It was not religion that put an end to this barbarous custom. It was the advance of civilization. Not the religious force, but the place rational thinking assumed in the life of people. The following is a description of a religious riot which took place in Alexandria during the early days of the church. Among the many victims of these unhappy tumults was Hypatia, a maiden not more distinguished for her beauty than for her learning and her virtues. Her father was Theon, the illustrious mathematician who had early initiated his daughter in the mysteries of philosophy. The classic grooves of Athens and the schools of Alexandria equally applauded her attainments and listened to the pure music of her lips. She respectfully declined the tender attentions of lovers, but, raised to the chair of Gamaliel, suffered youth and age, without preference or favor, to sit indiscriminately at her feet. Her fame and increasing popularity ultimately excited the jealousy of St. Cyril, at that time the Bishop of Alexandria, and her friendship for his antagonist Orestes, the prefect of the city, entailed on her devoted head the crushing weight of his enmity. In her way through the city, her chariot was surrounded by his creatures, headed by a crafty and savage fanatic named Peter the Reader and the young and innocent woman was dragged to the ground, stripped of her garments, paraded naked through the streets, and then torn limb from limb on the steps of the cathedral. The still warm flesh was scraped from her bones with oyster shells, and the bleeding fragments thrown into a furnace, so that not an atom of the beautiful virgin should escape destruction. The cruelty of man when spurred on by the mania of religious zeal. In more historic times, there are numerous instances of the tyranny exercised over women by the feudal system. Feudalism, composed as it was of military ideas and ecclesiastical traditions, exercised the well-known rights of seigneury. These rights comprised a jurisdiction which is now unprintable, and had even the power to deprive women of life itself. A history of the licentiousness of the monks and the early popes would fill a great number of volumes, and indeed many are the volumes which have been devoted to this subject. It will suffice to point out only a few representative incidents. In 1259, Alexander IV tried to disrupt the shameful union between concubines and the clergy. Henry III Bishop of Liege, was such a fatherly sort of individual that he had sixty-five natural children. William, Bishop of Padreborn in 1410, although successful in reducing such powerful enemies as the Archbishop of Cologne and the Count of Cloves by fire and sword, was powerless against the dissolute morals of his own monks 
who were chiefly engaged in the corruption of women. Indeed, the Swiss clergy in 1230 frankly stated that they were flesh and blood, unequal to the task of living like angels. The Council of Cologne in 1307 tried in vain to give the nuns a chance to live virtuous lives, to protect them from priestly seduction. Conrad, Bishop of Würzburg in 1521, accused his priests of habitual gluttony, drunkenness, gambling, quarreling, and lust. Erasmus warned his clergy against concubinage. The abbot of St. Pilazo de Antealtarin was proved by competent witnesses to have no less than 70 concubines. The old and wealthy abbey of St. Albans was little more than a den of prostitutes with whom the monks lived openly and avowedly. The Duke of Nuremberg in 1522 was concerned with the clerical immunity of monks, who night and day preyed upon the virtue of the wives and daughters of the laity. The church openly carried on a sale of indulgences in lust to ecclesiastics, which finally took the form of a tax. The Bishop of Utrecht in 1347 issued an order prohibiting the admittance of men to nunneries. In Spain, conditions became so intolerable that the communities forced their priests to select concubines so that the wives and daughters would be safe from the ravages of the clergy. The torture, the maiming, and the murder of Elgira by Dunstan illustrates further amongst thousands and thousands of similar bloody deeds, the diabolical brutality of superstition perpetuated in the name of Christianity upon women in the earlier centuries of our epoch. Indeed, religious superstition always has contrived to rob, to pester, to deceive, and to degrade women. Bell, Women from Bondage to Freedom During the Middle Ages, the ages in which the church was in complete domination of all forms of endeavor, the status of women was no better than the general conditions of the time. This age of faith is characterized by the violence and knavery that covered the whole country, the plagues and famines that decimated towns and villages every few years, the flood of spurious and indecent relics, the degradation of the clergy and monks, the slavery of the serfs, the daily brutalities of the ordeal and the torture, the coarse and bloody pastimes, the insecurity of life, the triumphant ravages of disease, the check of scientific inquiry, and a hundred other features of medieval life. Joseph McCabe, Religion of Woman The Church was chiefly responsible for the terrible persecutions inflicted on women on the ground of witchcraft, and this must be taken into calculation when one considers what woman owes to religion. The Reformation reduced woman to the position of a mere breeder of children. During the sway of Puritanism, woman was a poor, benighted being, a human toad under the harrow of a pious imbecility. The pioneers in the modern woman movement in this country were, of course, Mrs. Stanton, Mrs. Gage, and Miss Susan B. Anthony. In their History of Women's Suffrage, they comment on the vicious opposition which the early workers encountered in New York. 
Throughout this protracted and disgraceful assault on American womanhood, the clergy baptized every new insult and act of injustice in the name of the Christian religion, and uniformly asked God's blessing on proceedings that would have put to shame an assembly of Hottentots. And while the clergy neither remained silent or heaped abuse on this early movement, such free thinkers as Robert Owen, Jeremy Bentham, George Jacob Holyoke, and John Stuart Mill in England entered the fray wholeheartedly in behalf of the emancipation of women. In France, it was Michelet and George Sand that came to their aid. In Germany, it was Max Stirner, Buchner, Marx, Engels, and Liebknecht. In Scandinavia, it was Ibsen and Björnson. The battle was begun by free thinkers in defiance of the clergy, and it was only when the inevitable conquest of this movement was manifest that any considerable number of clergy came to the aid of this progressive movement. The righting of the wrongs imposed on womankind therefore had been started not only without the aid of the churches, but in face of their determined opposition. It was not the clergy that discovered the injustice that had been done to women throughout the centuries, and when it was finally pointed out to them by skeptics, it was the rare ecclesiastic that could see it so and attempt to right the wrong. R. H. Bell, in tracing this struggle of women in her publication Woman from Bondage to Freedom, has this pertinent remark to make. If there are any personal rights in this world over which church and state should have no control, it is the sexual right of a woman to say yes or no. These and similar rights are so deeply embedded in natural morality that no clear-headed, clean-hearted person should wish to controvert them. Enforced motherhood, through marriage or otherwise, is a mixed form of slavery. Voluntary motherhood is the glory of a free soul. In the age-long struggle for freedom, woman's most rigorous antagonist has always been the church. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 Of the Necessity of Atheism The Philosophers and the Great Illusion But the powers of man so far as experience and analogy can guide us, are unlimited. Nor are we possessed of any evidence which authorizes us to assign even an imaginary boundary at which the human intellect will, of necessity, be brought to a stand. Buckle. There has been an effort made in certain religious publications to imply that there is a dearth of thought and thinkers beyond the pale of theism. The subsequent examination of the theological beliefs of great minds will show you that there has never been a lack of brilliant thinkers who have not sought truth apart from the dominant faith of their age. It was Socrates, I believe, who first asked if it was not a base superstition that mere numbers will give wisdom. Granting this truth, it certainly cannot be claimed that the philosophers of any time constituted a majority of any population, nor that the philosopher as such was not greatly in advance of the mental status of the populace of his particular age. 
it would seem appropriate to briefly comment on the opinions of the philosophers, both ancient and modern, concerning their views on man's giant shadow, hailed divine. In former ages, philosophy was the handmaiden of theology. From the time of Socrates and Plato and throughout the medieval ages, the foremost task of the philosopher seemed to be to attempt the proof of the existence and nature of God and the immortality of the soul. The leading thinkers of the 17th century, Hobbes, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, and Malebranche, liberated philosophy from its bondage to theology. The criticism of Kant of the philosophical foundations of belief destroyed the theological proofs, and modern thinkers now spend little time on the question of the existence and nature of God and the soul. Modern philosophy has been completely secularized, and it is a rare occasion to find a philosopher dwelling on the problems of God and immortality. This question in philosophy, as in all other branches of thought, is utterly irrelevant, and at present there is less insistence on God and more on the world, man, morals, and the conditions of social life. It cannot be denied that we are under a heavy obligation intellectually to the Greek philosophers, and it may be that the fruitful efforts of these minds were largely due to their unhampered intellectual freedom. They had no holy books, and few authorities to check their free speculation, and hence these Greek thinkers furnished the first instance of intellectual freedom, from which arose their intelligent criticism and speculation. They discovered skepticism in the higher and proper significance of the word, and this was their supreme contribution to human thought. James Harvey Robinson, The Mind in the Making we know the teachings of Socrates only through his disciple Plato, as Socrates wrote nothing himself. From this source we gather that Socrates firmly upheld the right and necessity of free thought. He was mainly a moralist and reformer, and attempted to prove the existence of God by finding evidence of design in nature. He rejected the crude religious ideas of his nation, was opposed to anthropomorphism, but considered it his duty to conform publicly to this belief. In his old age, he was charged with rejecting the gods of the state, and was sentenced to death. The philosophy of Plato has given rise to diverse interpretations, and there are those who, on reading the dialogues, believe that it is not amiss to state that in certain utterances there is ground to hold that Plato argued for the pragmatic value of a belief in God and personal immortality, that he does not stress the truth of the matter, but argues mainly for the benefit which the state derives from the belief, that such theistic beliefs cannot be demonstrated and may well be but a craving and a hope yet it will be of no harm to believe. He inferred the existence of God from what he considered the intelligence and design manifested in natural objects. Mainly, however, Plato's theism was founded upon his doctrine of a universe of ideas. And as no one today holds that ideas are self-existing realities, the foundation of his theism is destroyed. 
James Harvey Robinson, in his Mind in the Making, discusses the influence of Plato and remarks, Plato made terms with the welter of things, but sought relief in the conception of supernatural models, eternal in the heavens, after which all things were imperfectly fashioned. He confessed that he could not bear to accept a world which was like a leaky pot or a man running at the nose. In short, he ascribed the highest form of existence to ideals and abstractions. This was a new and sophisticated republication of savage animism. It invited lesser minds than his to indulge in all sorts of noble vagueness and impertinent jargon which continue to curse our popular discussions of human affairs. He consecrated one of the chief foibles of the human mind and elevated it to a religion. The philosophy of Aristotle is commonly known to be the reverse of Plato's. Plato started with universals, the very existence of which was a matter of faith, and from these he descended to particulars. Aristotle, on the other hand, argued from particulars to universals, and this inductive method was the true beginning of science. The accumulated knowledge of his age did not furnish him facts enough upon which to build, and he had to resort to speculation. It does not detract from the stupendous achievement of this man that the clergy of the Middle Ages, in control of the few isolated centers of learning, looked upon the philosophy of Aristotle as final, and considered his works as semi-sacred, and in their immersion in unreason and unreality exalted as immutable and infallible the absurdities in the speculations of a mind limited to the knowledge of centuries before theirs. In the attempt to explain plant and animal life, Aristotle formulated the theory that a special form of animating principle was involved. The Elan Vital of Bergson and the theory of Joad are modern reiterations of this conception. Aristotle is not quite consistent when he attempts to give us his theistic beliefs. At times, God is, for him, a mysterious spirit that never does anything and has not any desire or will. Elsewhere, he conceives God as pure energy, a prime mover unmoved. Certain modern physicists still cling to this Aristotelian God. This conception of a deity was far from the beliefs of his age and it is not strange that Aristotle was charged with impiety and with having taught that prayer and sacrifice were of no avail. He fled from Athens and shortly afterwards died in exile. These three supreme Greek thinkers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, have not contributed a single argument for the existence of a supreme being which is now not discredited. Socrates relied on the now outmoded argument from design, and only in a greatly modified form are the arguments of Plato and Aristotle accepted by modern theists. Holding such heretical views in an age when history was a frail fabric of legends, and the scientific explanation of nature was in its extreme infancy, what would their views be today? In the consideration of the Greek thinkers of lesser importance, one finds that they were continually storming against the religious conceptions of the populace. The philosophers were ever unpopular with the credulous, 
Damon and Anaxagoras were banished. Aspasia was impeached for blasphemy, and the tears of Pericles alone saved her. Socrates was put to death. Plato was obliged to reserve pure reason for a chosen few, and to adulterate it with revelation for the generality of his disciples. Aristotle fled from Athens for his life, and became the tutor of Alexander. Winwood Reed, The Martyrdom of Man Anaxagoras, the friend and master of Pericles, Euripides, and Socrates, was accused by the superstitious Athenians of atheism and impiety to the gods. He was condemned to death and barely escaped this fate through the influence of Pericles, which resulted in the accusation of atheism against Pericles. Euripides was accused of heresy, and Aeschylus was condemned to be stoned to death for blasphemy and was saved from this fate by his brother Aminias. The philosophy of Parmenides was distinctly pantheistic, and Pythagoras, who attempted to purify the religion of the Greeks and free it from its absurdities and superstitions, was exiled for his skepticism. Democritus, a materialist and atheist of 2,500 years ago, formulated a mechanical view of phenomena in accordance with which everything that happens is due to physical impacts. Such a materialism was a great liberation from superstition, and had it survived in its integrity, the path of European wisdom would have been vastly different from what it was. What the path would have been, we are beginning to see today. For since the 19th century, we have been treading it more or less consistently, but by no means so gallantly and courageously as Democritus. G. Boas the Adventures of Human Thought Democritus and the Epicureans strove to deliver men from their two chief apprehensions, the fear of the gods and the fear of death, and in so doing rejected the religious beliefs and substituted a rational and scientific conception of the universe. It was Xenophanes, the Voltaire of Greece, who brought to the attention of his countrymen the discovery that man created the gods in his own image. He attacked the conceptions of the Greek deities with these words. Mortals deem that the gods are begotten as they are, and have clothes like theirs, and voice and form. Yes, and if oxen and horses or lions had hands, and could paint with their hands, and produce works of art as men do, Horses would paint the forms of the gods like horses, and oxen like oxen, and make their bodies in the image of their several kinds. The Ethiopians make their gods black and snub-nosed. The Thracians say theirs have blue eyes and red hair. Considering Greek philosophy in its entirety, we see that it was naturalistic rather than supernaturalistic and rationalistic rather than mystical. These gifted men saw no clear indication for the existence of a supreme being. Very few of them speak of the deity in the role of providence, and fewer still believed in personal immortality. Professor Boas, in contrasting Asiatic mythology with Greek philosophy, remarks, 
The Asiatic myths assumed the existence of beings beyond the world, not subject to mundane laws, who made and controlled the course of events. There was no reason why they should have made a world. They seemed to be living as divine a life without it as with it. The question was one which persisted in Asiatic thought, and when Christianity became dominant in Europe, much of its theologian's time was spent in answering it. The only plausible answer, then, was that God made the world because he felt like it, for no reason could be given sufficiently compelling to sway the will of the omnipotent. But such an answer was unsatisfactory to the Greek. In his philosophy all this is changed. No god steps out of the machine to initiate cosmic history. The first cause is a physical substance, some material thing, which operates by the laws of its own nature. Its every movement is theoretically open to the scrutiny of reason, and hence a scientific rather than a religious answer can be given to every question. At the beginning of the Christian era, the cultured Romans were Stoics, or Epicureans. The poet Lucretius was an Epicurean who regarded the belief in the gods as a product of the terrors of primitive man, and recommended that the mind should be emancipated from the fear of the gods, and argued against the immortality of the soul. Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius were Stoics. Cicero insinuates that the gods are only poetical creations, that the popular doctrine of punishment in a world to come is only an idle fable, and is uncertain whether the soul is immortal. Seneca wrote against the religion of his country, and the philosophy of cultured Romans of the time of the physician Galen tended towards atheism. The prime factor of Greek philosophy was the insistence on intelligence and knowledge, and by these means it reached its pinnacle of reasoning. The blight that exterminated all scientific progress with the fall of the Roman Empire carried with it the neglect of the Greek thinkers. Similar to the retrogression of scientific thought, traced in former chapters, is the corresponding retrogression in philosophic thought. In place of the free inquiry of the Greeks, we see arising the theology of Clement of Alexandria, Origen, St. Augustine, and finally that of St. Thomas Aquinas. At the time of St. Augustine, most of the cultural Greek writings had disappeared in Western Europe. The greatest store of Greek thought was in the hands of the Arab scholars, and led to a marked skepticism, as we see manifested in the writings of the Spanish Moors. It is significant that during the Age of Faith in Europe, no philosopher of merit arose, and the only philosophy permitted was the puerile scholastic Aristotelic. This scholastic philosophy, hemmed in between metaphysics and theology, sought to reconcile Plato, Plotinus, and Aristotle with the needs of orthodoxy, and split hairs over subtle essences and entities. Francis Bacon impeaches in this manner the medieval philosophers. Having sharp and strong wits, and abundance of leisure, and small variety of reading, but their wits being shut up in the cells of a few authors, as their persons were shut up in the cells of monasteries and colleges, and knowing little history, either of nature or time, 
did out of no great quantity of matter and infinite agitation of wit spin out unto us those laborious webs of learning which are extant in their books. The sole preoccupation of medieval philosophy seemed to be conjectures as to what would happen to man after death, and the entire system of thought was based on authority. The medieval philosopher turned in disdain from the arduous path of investigation of actual phenomena, and confidently believed that he could find truth by easy reliance upon revelation and the elaboration of dogmas. A few brave minds rebelled against this unnatural imprisonment of the intellect, with the usual consequences. Peter Abelard was condemned for his skepticism at a council at Sens in 1140. The philosophy of John Scotus Erigena was condemned for its pantheistic ideas by a council at Sens in 1225, and the pantheistic views of Bruno had much to do with his martyrdom in the year 1600. Montaigne, the pioneer of modern skepticism, gave voice to his repugnance for dogmas in his brilliant essays, in which he stated that all religious opinions are the result of custom, and that he doubted if, out of the immense number of religious opinions, there were any means of ascertaining which were accurate. Bacon, Hobbes, Locke, and Descartes were the inaugurators of a school of thought which is characterized by its practical spirit. And while these men professed theistic beliefs, their systems of thought had done much, when applied and amplified by their followers, to undermine that belief. These men furnished the source of a later agnosticism. Thomas Hobbes agreed with Bacon and Galileo that all knowledge starts from experience and, carrying out the inductive method of Bacon, he produced his Leviathan in 1651. It was promptly attacked by the clergy of every country in Europe. Hobbes says of the immortality of the soul, It is a belief grounded upon other men's sayings that they knew it supernaturally, or that they knew those who knew them, that knew others that knew it supernaturally. Locke concerned himself with a philosophic inquiry into the nature of the mind itself, and was looked upon as a destroyer of the faith. Descartes based his philosophy on the rejection of authority in favor of human reason, for which his works were honored by being placed on the index in 1663. Hume, with the publication of the highly heretical Treatise on Human Nature, threw consternation into the ranks of the theists. His theory of knowledge played havoc with the old arguments for belief in God and immortality of the soul. His works were widely read, and were instrumental in leading to the philosophical agnosticism of the 19th century. Spinoza's religious views seemed in his time little short of atheism, and brought him the hostility of both Jews and Christians, to which was added the excommunication from the synagogue. In his philosophy, God and nature are equivalent terms, and it is pantheistic only in the sense that if man is to have a god at all, nature must be that god, and whatever man considers godlike must be found in nature. Spinoza recognizes no supernatural realm and denies the survival of personal memory. Professor G. Boas 
in his Adventures of Human Thought, discusses the attitude of public opinion at the time of Spinoza. He was the arch-atheist, the materialist, the subverter of all that was held most dear by the reigning powers. It was only after the French Revolution that he came into his own, when certain Germans, captivated by Neoplatonism, emphasized the pantheistic element in him. But by then Christianity had ceased to be a dominant intellectual force, and had become what it is today, a folk belief. In the Tractus Theologico Politicus, Spinoza states, When people declare, as all are ready to do, that the Bible is the word of God, teaching men true blessedness and the way of salvation, they evidently do not mean what they say, for the masses take no pains at all to live according to scripture, and we see most people endeavoring to hawk about their own commentaries as the word of God and giving their best efforts, under the guise of religion, to compelling others to think as they do. We generally see, I say, theologians anxious to learn how to wring their inventions and sayings out of the sacred text, and to fortify them with divine authority. In France, Pierre Bayle cleverly satirized the absurdity of dogma, and La Maitrie, an army physician, was exiled for the publication of his Man a Machine. He insisted that if atheism were generally accepted, society would be happier. His views were taken up and expanded by such atheists as Helvetius, de Holbach, d'Alembert, and Diderot, who taught that morality should be founded on sociology and not on theology. The publication of their encyclopedia incurred the fierce opposition of the church. Of Voltaire's anti-clericism, little need be said, except to recall our debt to his victory over ecclesiasticism and superstition. His assertion that a fanaticism composed of superstition and ignorance has been the sickness of all the centuries still holds too great an extent of truth. His denial of miracles, the supernatural efficacy of prayer, and the immortality of the soul earned for him the undying enmity of the clergy. Condorcet, another deist, was the successor of Voltaire in the encyclopedic warfare. The critique of pure reason of Kant demolished the ontological and the cosmological arguments for the existence of God and showed the weakness in the teleological argument. He demonstrated that all the current arguments for God and immortality, the entire basis of rational proof of religious beliefs, were invalid. The theists protested vehemently, and showed their superiority by calling their dogs Immanuel Kant. In his critique of practical reason, however, he went on to restore the credit of religion through the moral sense, the categorical imperative, and, as certain commentators have stated, after having excluded God from the cosmos, he attempted to find him again in ethics. Holding that the moral sense is innate and not derived from experience, he reduced the truth of religion to moral faith. Kant believed that he found a divine command in his own conscience, 
but the science of ethics now gives a natural account of moral laws and sentiments. The study of the evolution of our moral ideas has, today, destroyed Kant's theory of an innate and absolute moral sense. When Franklin showed the nature of lightning, the voice of God was displaced from that of thunder. The sciences of ethics and theology, like modern Franklin's, show plainly that conscience is no more the voice of God than is thunder. Schopenhauer, commenting on Kantian theology, offers the suggestion that Kant was really a skeptic, but became frightened when he contemplated what he thought would happen to public morals if belief were to be denied to the masses. Nietzsche speaks of Kant, with the aid of his concept of practical reason, he produced a special kind of reason, for use on occasions when reason cannot function, namely when the sublime command, Thou shalt, resounds. In his old age, Kant became more bold and perhaps voiced his true views. For we find that in Religion Within the Limits of Pure Reason, he is actively antagonistic to ecclesiasticism and so much so that, for publishing this work, he was censured by the Prussian king, who wrote, Our highest person has been greatly displeased to observe how you misuse your philosophy to undermine and destroy many of the most important and fundamental doctrines of the Holy Scriptures and of Christianity. Indeed, many a man approaching Kant with a firm theistic belief finds his belief somewhat shaken by Kantian logic. Schopenhauer's will has nothing in common with the God idea as commonly held, and he was bitterly anti-theistic. In a dialogue entitled Religion, he places these words in the mouth of his character Philalenthes. A certain amount of general ignorance is the condition of all religions, the element in which alone they can exist. And as soon as astronomy, natural science, geology, history, the knowledge of countries and peoples have spread their light broadcast, and philosophy finally is permitted to say a word, every faith founded on miracles and revelation must disappear, and philosophy takes its place. Hegel's deification of thought or reason left no room for personal immortality, and his query, do you expect a tip for having nursed your ailing mother, and refrained from poisoning your brother, is well known. A vague conception of a deity whose existence can be proved, if it can be proved at all, only by the abstruse arguments of a Hegel, is not a god of practical service to the theists. Schelling was pantheistic, and Feuerbach played havoc with the philosophic evidence for God and immortality, and treated all religions as a dream and an illusion. Herbert Spencer, James Mill, J. S. Mill, and Huxley popularized the agnostic standpoint. Spencer, in his First Principles, argues in this manner. Those who cannot conceive of a self-existent universe and therefore assume a creator as a source of the universe, take for granted that they can conceive a self-existent creator. The mystery which they recognize in this great fact surrounding them on every side, they transfer to an alleged source of this great fact, 
and then suppose that they have solved the mystery. But they delude themselves. Self-existence is inconceivable, and this holds true whatever be the nature of the object of which it is predicated. Whoever agrees that the atheistic hypothesis is untenable because it involves the impossible idea of self-existence must perforce admit that the theistic hypothesis is untenable if it contains the same impossible idea. If religion and science are to be reconciled, the basis of reconciliation must be this deepest, widest, and most certain of all facts, that the power which the universe manifests to us is inscrutable. Nietzsche, the great liberator of modern thought, vigorously opposed religious morality, the influence of Christianity, and all religious beliefs. When the natural consequences of an action, he wrote, are no longer looked upon as natural, but are considered to be produced by the phantasms of superstition, by God, ghosts, and souls, and appear as moral consequences, as rewards, punishments, guidance, and revelation, then the whole basis of knowledge is destroyed, and the greatest possible crime against humanity has been committed. William James, claimed as a supporter of religion, argues that our inner experience makes us cognizant of a spiritual world. The advance of psychological research does not deal kindly with this contention, and such works as Luba's Psychology of Religious Mysticism give a rational explanation of the mystic state. Moreover, James did not give his support to monotheism. That vast literature of proofs of God's existence, he stated, drawn from the order of nature, which a century ago seemed so overwhelmingly convincing, today does little more than gather dust in the libraries, for the simple reason that our generation has ceased to believe in the kind of God it argued for. Whatever sort of God may be, we know today that he is never more that mere external inventor of contrivances intended to make manifest his glory in which our great-grandfathers took such satisfaction. James claimed to be a pluralist in the sense that there are several or many spiritual beings above us, and his writings lead one to believe that he was not convinced that man as a distinct personality survives the grave. Royce rejected all the current arguments for God and immortality, and argues for the mysticism of internal experience. Euken offers no support to theologians, and Bergson does not seem to express a clear belief in a personal God or personal immortality. Coming to the more popular of contemporary philosophers, one finds that, just as the Greek philosophers reasoned outside the pale of the then-held beliefs which were theistic, so do these modern philosophers reach conclusions that are outside the pale of organized religion of today. George Santayana is a materialist and skeptic who, in his Reason in Religion, reveals his skepticism and frowns upon personal immortality. It is pathetic, he comments, to observe how lowly are the motives that religion, even the highest, attributes to the deity, and from what a hard-pressed and bitter existence they have been drawn. 
to be given the best morsel, to be remembered, to be praised, to be obeyed blindly and punctiliously, these have been thought points of honor with the gods, for which they would dispense favors and punishments on the most exorbitant scale. The idea that religion contains a literal, not a symbolic, representation of truth and life is simply an impossible idea. Whoever entertains it has not come within the region of profitable philosophizing on that subject. Bertrand Russell, considered by some the keenest philosophical mind of the present age, is an agnostic who maintains, The objections to religion are of two sorts, intellectual and moral. The intellectual objection is that there is no reason to suppose any religion true. The moral objection is that religious precepts date from a time when men were more cruel than they are now, and therefore tend to perpetuate inhumanities which the moral conscience of the age would otherwise outgrow. The Italian philosopher Benedetto Croce is an atheist who states that philosophy removes from religion all reason for existing. C. E. M. Jode is a young English philosopher who repeatedly predicts the disappearance in the near future of the present forms of theistic beliefs. M. C. Otto holds to an affirmative faith in the non-existence of God. William P. Montague discards all organized religions for a Promethean religion. John Dewey is a naturalistic philosopher who will have nothing to do with supernatural causation and insists that all things be explained by their place and function in the environment. His philosophy is permeated with the secular ideal of control of the external world. What consolation does organized religion receive from the views of such modern philosophers as Russell, Alexander, Jode, Croce, Santayana, Dewey, Otto, Montague, Sellers, and the Randalls. The views of an intellectual incompetent, such as Bryan was, are spread widecast, but few know the extent of the skepticism of Edison, Luther, Burbank, Albert Einstein, Paul Ehrlich, Ernst Haeckel, Robert Koch, Friedjof Nansen, and Swante Arrhenius. What consolation can the theists derive from the religious views of Shelley, Swinburne, Meredith, Buchanan, Keats, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, Mark Twain, and Anatole France? In the not far distant past, deism and pantheism served as a polite subterfuge for atheism. There is a growing tendency in this present age to dress one's atheistic belief in an evening suit, and for the sake of social approbation call such a belief religious humanism. A quotation from the Associated Press, appearing recently in one of our magazines, states the need for this new religion as being the inadequacy of the religious forms and ideas of our fathers, and the new creed to be, Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in the light of the scientific spirit and method. 
the distinction between the sacred and secular can no longer be maintained. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of a man's life, and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. In place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. There will be no uniquely religious emotions and attitudes of the kind hitherto associated with belief in the supernatural. Man will learn to face the crises of life in terms of his knowledge of their naturalness and probability. Reasonable and manly attitudes will be fostered by education and supported custom. We assume that humanism will take the path of social and mental hygiene, and discourage sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society in which the people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate for the common good. The time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious thoughts throughout the modern world. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Religions the world over are under the necessity of coming to terms with new conditions created by a vastly increased knowledge and experience. Professors John Dewey, E. A. Burt, and Roy Wood Sellers are among the signers of this statement. It is an excellent and comprehensive statement, but one is left wondering why the name religious humanism. It is difficult to become enthusiastic when one realizes that these men take to themselves the thunder of the atheists of the past, and under the misnomer religious, place before the public what all atheists of the past ages have been preaching. It is most gratifying to perceive that such distinguished men, as signed this statement, are frank enough to admit the extent of the religious revolution, and determined enough to take a hand in the clearing away of the debris that clutters the crumbling of all religious creeds. Yet it is only fair to point out that this statement contains nothing that would not be recognized by those intrepid atheists of the past, and little more than they urged in their time. I refer to those brilliant French atheists Lametri, Helvetius, de Holbach, d'Alembert, and Diderot. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 Of the Necessity of Atheism Part 1 The Doom of Religion The Necessity of Atheism one should recall the charge of atheism directed against the keenest thinkers of antiquity and the greatest of its moral reformers. But what was personal and incidental in the past, depending largely upon the genius and inspiration of seers and leaders, has now become a social movement as wide as science. James T. Shotwell The drift from God is a movement of events a propulsion of vital experience, not a parade of words to be diverted by other words. Max Carl Otto In the Babylonian and Assyrian mythologies, we have the chief deities as Ishtar, Tammuz, Baal, and Astarte. In the Phrygian religion, we have the goddess Cybele, 
and her husband Attis. Among the Greeks, we have the goddess Aphrodite and the god Adonis. The Persians had their Mithra. Adonis and Attis flourished in Syria. In the Egyptian religion was found the goddess Isis and the god Osiris. The Semites have their Jehovah, the Mohammedans their Allah, and the Christians the goddess Mary, the God the Father, and the Son, Jesus. Christianity has divided itself into Catholicism and Protestantism, and when Protestantism gave the right of interpretation of the Bible to each individual, there were evolved such forms of Protestantism as Christian Science, Holy Rollerism, Seventh-day Adventism, Swedenborgianism, and the cults of the Dukobors, the Shakers, the Mennonites, the Dunkards, and the Salvation Army. In the early days of the church were seen the wrangling of sects, the incomprehensible jargon of Arians, Nestorians, Eutychians, Monotheists, Monophysites, Mariolatrists, etc. Today we behold the incomprehensible jargon of the first-mentioned sects. Christ, born of an immaculate virgin, died for mankind, arose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Buddha, who lived over five hundred years before Jesus, was born of the virgin Maya, which is the same as Mary, Maya conceived by the Holy Ghost, and thus Buddha was of the nature of God and man combined. Buddha was born on December 25th. His birth was announced in the heavens by a star, and angels sang. He stood upon his feet and spoke at the moment of his birth. At five months of age he sat unsupported in the air, and at the moment of his conversion he was attacked by a legion of demons. He was visited by wise men, he was baptized, transfigured, performed miracles, rose from the dead, and on his ascension through the air to heaven he left his footprint on a mountain in Ceylon. The Hindu savior Krishna was born of a virgin six hundred years before Christ. A star shone at his birth, which took place in a cave. He was adored by cowherds, who recognized his greatness. He performed miracles, was crucified, and is to come to judge the earth. Christ died for mankind. So did Buddha and Krishna. Adonis, Osiris, Horus, and Tammuz, all virgin-born gods, were saviors and suffered death. Christ rose from the dead. So have Krishna and Buddha arisen from the dead and ascended into heaven. So did Lao Kium, Zoroaster, and Mithra. A star shone in the sky at the births of Krishna, Ramalyu, Lao Tse, Moses, Quetzalcoatl, Ormuzd, Rama, Buddha, and others. Christ was born of a virgin, so was Krishna and Buddha. Lao Tse was also born of a virgin. Horus in Egypt was born of the virgin Isis. Isis, with the child Horus on her knee, was worshipped centuries before the Christian era, and was appealed to under the names of Our Lady, Queen of Heaven, Star of Heaven, Star of the Sea, Mother of God, and so forth. Hercules, Bacchus, and Perseus were gods born by mortal mothers. 
Zeus, father of the gods, visited Semel in the form of a thunderstorm, and she gave birth on the 25th of December to the great savior and deliverer Dionysus. Mithra was born of a virgin in a cave on the 25th of December. He was buried in a tomb from which he rose again. He was called savior and mediator and sometimes figured as a lamb. Osiris was also said to be born about the 25th of December. He suffered, died, and was resurrected. Hercules was miraculously conceived from a divine father and was everywhere invoked as savior. Minerva had a more remarkable birth than Eve. She sprang full-armed from the brow of Jupiter. He did this remarkable feat without even losing a rib. The Chinese Tien, the Holy One, died to save the world. In Mexico, Quetzalcoatl, the Savior, was the son of Chimalman, the Virgin Queen of Heaven. He was tempted, fasted forty days, was done to death, and his second coming was eagerly looked for by the natives. The Teutonic goddess Hertha was a virgin, and the sacred groves of Germany contained her image with a child in her arms. The Scandinavian goddess Frigga was a virgin who bore a son, Baldur, healer and savior of mankind. When one considers the similarity of these ancient pagan legends and beliefs with Christian traditions, if one believes with Justin Martyr, then indeed the devil must have been a very busy person to have caused these pagans to imitate for such long ages and in such widespread localities the Christian mysteries. Indeed, Edward Carpenter comments, One has only, instead of the word Jesus, to read Dionysus, or Krishna, or Hercules, or Osiris, or Attis, and instead of Mary, to insert Semel, or Devaki, or Alcmeni, or Neith, or Nona, and for Pontius Pilate, to use the name of any terrestrial tyrant who comes into the corresponding story. And lo, the creed fits in all particulars into the rites and worship of a pagan god. A legend stated that Plato, born of Perictione, a pure virgin, suffered an immaculate conception through the influences of Apollo, B.C. 426. The god declared to Ariston, to whom she was about to be married, the parentage of the child. St. Dominic, born A.D. 1170, was said to be the offspring of an immaculate conception. He was free from original sin and was regarded as the adopted son of the Virgin Mary. St. Francis, the compeer of St. Dominic, was born A.D. 1182. A prophetess foretold his birth. He was born in a stable. Angels sang forth peace and goodwill into the air, and one, in the guise of Simeon, bore him to baptism. The Egyptian trinities are well known. Thus, from Amun, by Maut, proceeds Conso. From Osiris, by Isis, proceeds Horus. From Nepth, by Sate, proceeds Anoke. The Egyptians had propounded the dogma that there had been divine incarnations, the fall of man, and redemption. In India, 
Centuries before Christianity, we find the Hindu trinity, Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva. In the Institutes of Manu, a code of civil law as well as religious law, written about the ninth century before Christ, is found a description of creation, the nature of God, and rules for the duty of man in every station of life, from the moment of birth to death. Professor James T. Shotwell, when speaking of paganism, reminds us, Who of us can appreciate antique paganism? The gods of Greece or Rome are for us hardly more than the mutilated statues of them in our own museums, pitiable, helpless objects before the scrutiny and comments of a passing crowd. Venus is an armless figure from the Louvre. Dionysus does not mean to us divine possession, the gift of tongues, or immortality. Attis brings no salvation. But to antiquity, the pagan cults were no mockery. They were as real as Polynesian heathenism or Christianity today. James T. Shotwell, The Religious Revolution of Today it is seen therefore that from time immemorial man does not discover his gods but invents them he invents them in the light of his experience and endows them with capacities that indicate the stage of man's mental development religion is not the product of civilized man man inherits his god just as he inherits his physical qualities the idea of a supernatural being creating and governing this earth is a phantom born in the mind of the savage. If it had not been born in the early stages of man's mental development, it surely would not come into existence now. History proves that as the mind of man expands, it does not discover new gods, but that it discards them. It is not strange, therefore, that there has not been advanced a new major religious belief in the last 1300 years. All modern religious conceptions, no matter how disguised, find their origin in the fear-stricken ignorance of the primitive savage. A Christian will admit that the gods of others are man-made, and that their creed is similar to the worship of the savage. He looks at their gods with the vision of a civilized being. But when he looks at his own god, he forgets his civilization, he relapses centuries of time, and his mental viewpoint is that of the savage. Christianity, with its primitive concepts, can make its adherents firm in the belief of great monstrosities. When its adherents believed that the Bible sanctioned the destruction of heretics and witches, they were certainly doing things from a Christian standpoint. It was this standpoint that justified an embittered denunciation of evolution at one time, and then recanting, adopting it as a part of the Bible teaching. When the Spaniards blotted out an entire civilization in South America, when Catholics butchered Protestants, or Protestants butchered Catholics, they were all justified from the Christian standpoint. Man has been living on this planet some 500,000 years. Jesus appeared less than 2,000 years ago to save mankind. What of those countless millions of men that died before Christ came to save the world from damnation? If the Christian creed that except a man believes in the Lord Jesus Christ he cannot be saved is maintained, 
then it must be that those millions of human beings who lived before Christ and had no chance to believe are in hell fire. It is probable that one of the factors that turned primitive man's attention away from his cruel and short earthly existence to the thought of a more lengthy and less cruel existence in a hereafter was the extreme uncertainty and short duration of his own life. And this primitive trend of thought that turns man's mind from the here and now to a contemplation of a mythical hereafter persists to this day, produces the same slavish resignation. This false release from the actualities consists a mental aberration which we see in the hysterical and weak-minded. When such an individual is confronted by problems that tax his mental strength, if that individual has not strength of mind to reason and to persevere so that he overcomes his environmental difficulties, he will seek an avenue of escape in a fanciful existence which the physician recognizes in hysteria and certain forms of mental disease. So, throughout the ages, man has sought release from the realities of his existence into a fanciful and pleasantly delusional flight into a hereafter. There is no salvation in that sickly obscurantism which attempts to evade realities by confusing itself about them. Safety lies only in clarity and the struggle for the light. No subliminal nor fringe of consciousness can rank in the intellectual life beside the burning focal center where the rays of knowledge converge. The hope must be in following reason, not in thwarting it. To turn back from it is not mysticism, it is superstition. No, we must be prepared to see the higher criticism destroy the historicity of the most sacred texts of the Bible. Psychology analyzed the phenomena of conversion on the basis of adolescent passion. Anthropology explained the genesis of the very idea of God. And where we can understand, it is a moral crime to cherish the ununderstood. James T. Shotwell, The Religious Revolution of Today Religious beliefs are clearly mental aberrations from which it is high time that the progress of knowledge should lead to a logical cure. Man is steadily overcoming and conquering his environment. The uncertainty of life and cruelty are much diminished as compared with the past ages. But man has not as yet fully utilized the means of an emancipating measure from his mental enslavement and fear of his environment. Chapman Cohen, in his Theism or Atheism, clearly states, We know that man does not discover God. He invents him. And an invention is properly discarded when a better instrument is forthcoming. Today, the hypothesis of God stands in just the same relation to the better life of today as the fire drill of the savage does to the modern method of obtaining a light. The belief in God may continue a while in virtue of the lack of intelligence of some or the carelessness of others and of the conservative character of the mass. But no amount of apologizing can make up for the absence of genuine knowledge nor can the flow of the finest eloquence do aught but clothe in regal raiment the body of a corpse. 
religion arose as a means of explanation of natural phenomena at a time when no other explanation of the origin of natural phenomena had been ascertained. God is always what Spinoza called it, the asylum of ignorance. When causes are unknown, God is brought forward. When causes are known, God retires into the background. In an age of ignorance, God is active. In an age of science, he is impotent. History attests this fact. The single and outstanding characteristic of the conception of God at all times and under all conditions is that it is the equivalent of ignorance. In primitive times, it is ignorance of the character of the natural forces that leads to the assumption of the existence of gods. And in this respect, the God idea has remained true to itself throughout. Even today, whenever the principle of God is invoked, a very slight examination is enough to show that the only reason for this being done is our ignorance of the subject before us. Chapman Cohen the belief in God is least questioned where civilization is lowest. It is called into the most serious question where civilization is most advanced. It is clear that had primitive man known what we know today about nature, the gods would never have been born. The suspicious feature must be pointed out that the belief in God owes its existence not to the trained and educated observation of civilized times, but to the uncritical reflection of the primitive mind. It has its origin there, and it would indeed be remarkable if, while in almost every other direction the primitive mind showed itself to be hopelessly wrong, in its interpretation of the world in this particular respect it has proved itself to be altogether right. Chapman Cohen. All intelligent men admit that human welfare depends upon our knowledge and our ability to harness the forces of nature. I myself, writes Llewellyn Powys, do not doubt that the good fortune of the human race depends more on science than on religion. In all directions the bigotry of the churches obstructs amelioration. As long as the majority of men rely upon supernatural interference, supernatural guidance, from a human point of view all is likely to be confusion. Trusting in God rather than in man, it is in the nature of these blind worshippers to oppose every advance of human knowledge. It was they who condemned Galileo, who resisted Darwin, and who today deride the doctrines of Freud. Science has given us an account of the operation of the universe, sun, God. And investigation has also given us a clear conception of the evolution of all religious beliefs, from the crude conceptions of the savage to the but little altered form of the modern conception. If we are to regard the God idea as an evolution which began in the ignorance of primitive man, it would seem clear that no matter how refined or developed the idea may become, it can rest on no other or sounder basis than which is presented to us in the psychology of primitive man. Each stage of theistic belief grows out of the preceding stage, and if it can be shown that the beginning of this evolution arose in a huge blunder, I quite fail to see how any subsequent development can convert this unmistakable blunder into a demonstrable truth. Chapman Cohen
men of today are trying to force themselves to believe that there must be something true in that which had been believed by so many great and pious men of old. But it is in vain. Intellect has outgrown faith. They are aware of the fallacy of their opinions, yet angry that another should remind them of it. And these men, who today are secretly skeptics, are loudest in their public denunciation of others who publicly announce their skepticism. In ancient Greece, when the philosophers came into prominence, Zeus was superseded by the air, and Poseidon by the water. In modern times, all hitherto supernatural events are being explained by physical laws. Plato regarded it as a patriotic duty to accept the public faith, although he full well knew the absurdities of that faith. Today, there are many Platos that hold to the same conviction. The freethinkers hold to the view of Xenophanes, who denounced the public faith as an ancient blunder, which had been converted by time into a national imposture. All religion is a delusion which transfers the motives and thoughts of men to those who are not men. No ecclesiastic has as yet offered a satisfactory answer as to why there has been a marvelous disappearance of the working of miracles, and why human actions alone are now to be seen in this world of ours. We are witnessing today what happened in the Roman Empire during the decline of polytheism. Draper states, Between that period during which a nation has been governed by its imagination, and that in which it submits to reason, there is a melancholy interval. The constitution of man is such that, for a long time after he has discovered the incorrectness of the ideas prevailing around him, he shrinks from openly emancipating himself from their dominion and, constrained by the force of circumstances, he becomes a hypocrite, publicly applauding what his private judgment condemns. Where a nation is making this passage, so universal do these practices become that it may be truly said hypocrisy is organized. It is possible that whole communities might be found living in this deplorable state. And indeed, in our own country, we are witnessing an example of this very thing. Religion has led to widespread hypocrisy. Our religious influences have created a race of men mentally docile and obedient to the dictates of tyrannical ecclesiasticism. It has created a fear of truth, and our minds are still brutish and puerile in our methods of reasoning. Credulity has led to stultification, and stultification of the mind is the bitter fruit which we have been reaping for thousands of years. There are probably hundreds of thousands of men and women in these United States that give lip service to their creed, but deep in the recesses of their minds a small voice cries to them and shames them, for as soon as they reason, they become skeptics. How can we know the actual number of earthlings that are skeptics? It is impossible in our present state of development. Religious persecution today is just as active as it was during the Middle Ages. Surely a man is not burned at the stake for his skepticism in this age, but is he not done to death? If the grocer, the butcher, the doctor, the lawyer, the scholar, 
the businessman, were to boldly announce his skepticism, what would happen to him? The answer is well known to all. Immediately, each of his religious customers would take it upon himself to act as a personal inquisition. The skeptic would be shunned socially, he would be ignored, his wares would be sought after elsewhere, and he would suffer. His wife, his family, his children would suffer with him. For our economic scheme makes the would-be skeptic dependent upon the whims of the majority believers. He is forced to hold his tongue or else is tortured. Are not the wants of his family, the hunger, and ostracism torture? Thus thousands are forced into hypocrisy. Many others, although they have outgrown all fear of the god of orthodoxy, the fear of the god of social pressure remains. There are embodied in all creeds three human impulses, fear, conceit, and hatred, and religion has given an air of respectability to these passions. Religion is a malignant disease born of fear, a cancer which has been eating into the vitals of everything that is worthwhile in our civilization, and by its growth obstructing those advances which make for a more healthful life. Morally and intellectually, socially and historically, religion has been shown to be a pernicious influence. Some of these influences falling into these classifications have been considered in previous chapters. The modern Christian, in his amusing ignorance, asserts that Christianity is now mild and rationalistic, ignoring the fact that all its so-called mildness and rationalism is due to the teaching of men who in their own day were persecuted by all Orthodox Christians. Historically, churches have stood on the side of the powers that be. They have defended slavery or have held their tongues about it, they have maintained serfdom and kept serfs. They have opposed every movement undertaken for the liberation of the masses of men. The ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity are the creations of the camps of their enemies, of the rationalists of the 18th century, and the liberals and socialists of the 19th century. They have defended and condoned the industrial exploitation of children, they have fought bitterly the enfranchisement of women. They have justified unjust war. They have fought with book and bill and candle and faggot every new great step in the advancement of science, from gravitation to evolution. Wardens, ever since Constantine, gave the schools of antiquity into the keeping of the Christian bishops, of the education of the people, they have fought with all their power the establishment of free public schools and the spread of literacy and knowledge among the people. Horace M. Callan, Why Religion? If Christianity has made any progress in the assimilation of doctrines that are less barbarous than heretofore, they have been effected in spite of the most vigorous resistance and solely as a result of the onslaught of free thinkers. Throughout the ages, when a thinking man had questioned the how and why of any secular problem, so long as that problem had no direct or indirect bearing upon religion, or upon any branch of knowledge that was assumed to be infallibly foretold in the Bible, that man was unmolested. 
The problems falling into the above classification were extremely small due to the strongly defended theological lunacy that asserted itself in the declaration that all knowledge, both spiritual and material, was contained in the Bible as interpreted by the Church. Man, however, when he broached his religious doubts, was regarded as the most sinful of beings, and it was forbidden him to question and yield to the conclusions that his mind evolved. Think of the irony and tragedy of this self-enslavement of the human mind. There is one characteristic that man prides himself as having apart from all lower animals, his ability to reason and to think. Is it his superior musculature and brute strength that has placed man upon his present pinnacle of advanced civilization? Or is it his mental development, his mind, that has taught him to harness the forces of nature? Has not his mind so coordinated his movements that he has enslaved those forces of nature to be his aid? And yet, if mind is one thing that has enabled man to pull himself out of the morass of brute life, why has it been that man himself has been so persistently decrying and degrading the efforts of that mind? The answer is that religion has provided the shackles and securely and jealously enslaved the mind. With the aid of his religious beliefs, man has been ensnared into a mental prison in which he has been an all-too-willing captive. Surely it is easier to believe than to think. Napoleon, himself a skeptic, was cognizant of this slave philosophy. What is it, he is reported to have asked, that makes the poor man think it is quite natural that there are fires in my castle when he is dying of cold, that I have ten coats in my wardrobe while he goes naked, that at each of my meals enough is served to feed his family for a week? It is simply religion which tells him that in another life I shall be only his equal, and that he actually has more chance of being happy than I. Yes, we must see to it that the doors of the churches are open to all, and that it does not cost the poor man much to have prayers said on his tomb. How well the ecclesiastical psychologists have grasped this fact, and how well they have fashioned a strong chain for the mind out of this weakness of human minds. Church and government have been well aware of this psychology and have fought constantly the spread of free-thought literature to the masses. Professor Burry, in his History of Freedom of Thought, speaking of England, tells us, If we take the cases in which the civil authorities have intervened to repress the publication of unorthodox opinions during the last two centuries, we find that the object has always been to prevent the spread of free thought among the masses. Think but a moment how well the above is borne out by the attitude of the church in the stand that it took during the Middle Ages, when she prohibited the reading of the Bible by any person except her clergy, when she prohibited the printing of all books except those that she had approved of books that minutely agreed in all details with the fantastic fables of her Bible were the only ones allowed to be printed. The Church also strenuously objected to the printing of Bibles in the languages of the masses. 
that most efficient shackle to the mind, that precept that there was no knowledge, whether material or spiritual, that was not contained in the Bible, how strenuously the Church upheld that doctrine. And in our own day, the ridiculous assumption that mysteries, a special form of ignorance, are the special province of the Church. Considering these few examples, as well as all ecclesiastical endeavor, no rational mind can escape the fact that that primeval curse, religion, has had for its object, down through the centuries, the sadistic desire to enslave and trample on the mind of man. It has been a defensive measure on the part of the church, for she well recognizes that once the mind is free, it will free itself of the shackles of religion also. Nor is this all. I execrate the enslavement of the mind of our young children by the ecclesiastics. Is anything so pitiful to behold as the firm grasp that the church places on the mind of the youngest of children? Children at play, children of four and five years of age, will be heard to mention with fearful tones various religious rites such as baptism and confirmation, and to perform in their manner these rites with their dolls. Fear. Fear instilled into the minds of the impressionable children. Think of the degradation that the ecclesiastics practice when they insist that from the time a child is out of its infancy, its instruction shall be placed in their hands. They take the most precious possession of man, his mind, and mold it to their desire. The mind of a child is plastic. It is like a moist piece of clay, and they mold it and form it to their desire. Warped and poured into the ecclesiastic mold of fear, the mind of the child becomes set and fixed with the years. Then it is too late for rational thinking, as far as religious matters go. The mind of the adult is firmly set in the form that the ecclesiastic has fashioned for him in his youth. It is impossible for the adult so taught to reason clearly and rationally concerning his religion. The mold is too strong. The clay has set. Reason cannot penetrate into that hardened form. That is why it is almost impossible for the adult who has been exposed to this mental molding from his infancy to break away from the fears and superstitions learned on his mother's knee. If Christianity, Hebrewism, Mohammedanism, or any other creed is true, its truth must be more apparent at the age of twenty-five than it is at the age of five. Why does the ecclesiastic not leave off his advances until the child reaches a mature age, an age when he can reason? Then, if theism is true, he can accept it with a reasoning mind, not a blindly faithful mind. The theist realizes, however, that belief is at one pole, reason at the other. Belief, creed, religion are ideations of the primitive mind and the mind of the child. Reason is the product of mature thought. Schopenhauer remarked that the power of religious dogma, when inculated early, is such as to stifle conscience, compassion, and finally every feeling of humanity. 
It is an undeniable fact that if the clergy would but leave their tainted hands off the minds of our children until they would have reached a mature age, there would be no religious instinct. Religious instinct is a myth. Give me but two generations of men who have not been subjected to this religious influence in childhood, and there will be a race of atheists. The ecclesiastic has from earliest times taken the standpoint that the masses of people are of crude susceptibility and clumsy intelligence, sordid in their pursuits and sunk in drudgery, and religion provides the only means of proclaiming and making them feel the high import of life. Schopenhauer. Thus the theist is led to the conclusion that the end justifies the means. Theism is a hypothesis which, among other things, attempts an explanation of the universe. The theist recognizes a creator who created the universe and is responsible for its operation. The atheist clearly perceives that the assumption of a creator does not advance him in the slightest degree towards the solution of the mysterious problem of the universe. The oft-repeated question still admits of no answer. Who created the creator? It is an absurd answer to reply that the creator created himself, yet, even if this is granted, may not the universe have created itself? If the theist puts forward the statement that God has always existed, the atheist may well reply that if God has always existed, why can he not say that the universe has always existed? The atheist is not concerned with the creation of the universe. To him, it presents a problem which is beyond the comprehension of his present mental capacities. He comprehends the fact of its being, and that is as far as he or any rational mind can go. Atheism confines itself to a refutation of theism, and avoids the theistic fallacy of assuming without any proofs or reasonable arguments to substantiate the assumption of an intelligent, omnipotent, omniscient, anthropomorphic, and anthropocentric creator. The theistic assumption has but retarded the advance of practical knowledge and prepared the soil for superstition and the countless terrors of religious beliefs. Atheism, as far as a rational explanation of the universe is covered, although it does not offer an explanation of the ultimate or the riddle of the universe, does insist that any view held be one that shall be based on truth and conformity to reality. It further maintains that if a view be propagated, it should be held in the same position that any scientific proposition is held. It must be open to verification. If it be verified as any scientific theory is verified, it will be accepted in part or in toto, and be proven to be true or displaced by a closer approximation to the truth. To certain types of men, there may be a negative attitude expressed in this credo, which leaves the mind unsatisfied. This is but an emotional bias, and has nothing to do whatsoever with the attainment of truth. A delusion may be more comforting than the truth, but that does not necessitate the conclusion that a delusion may be of more ultimate benefit than a constant striving for the truth. It has often been said that atheism, in that negative aspect, places a question mark upon our problems. However, 
While a question mark may indicate a negative value, it may also prove to be a mental provocative. A period placed at the end of a problem denotes that it has been definitely solved. In connection with the origin of the universe, no period can be placed at the end of that problem, and since we are awaiting the solution, it is much more to the interest of further advances to place the question mark there than to consider the matter solved. Surely, sufficient instances have been enumerated in this discussion to show the stultification and retardation that ensues when an institution maintains an insistence that a problem be held to conform in any of its explanatory aspects to a preconceived infallible statement, or considers a problem not to exist, or closes its eyes to the inconsistencies in an explanation which is being maintained by mental persuasion and force. When the Bible was considered as containing the answer to all our problems, we have seen what the result was. If atheism places a question mark upon the problem of the universe, it does so in a constructive manner, for that mark points to the direction in which a logical solution may be possible. Such is the mental attitude of the scientist. He places an interrogation point upon his problems, and that mark is the impetus the mental stimulus that leads him on to take infinite pains in his labors, and as time passes, each question mark is replaced by knowledge. It is knowledge and knowledge alone, reason, not faith, that furnishes the period. It was Haeckel who asserted that the most dangerous of the three great enemies of reason and knowledge is not malice, but ignorance, or perhaps indolence. The question mark as applied to a problem that is recognizably not solved is a signpost to the knowledge that time must bring. The spurious period placed at the end of a problem is the death warrant for that problem, and there it must lie, devitalized by ignorance and indolence. It has often been affirmed that what we see in this universe is phenomena, and all explanations but interpret the manifestations of these phenomena. What is in the back of and beyond these phenomena may never be known, and if it be known, would be of no further use to us. It is equally as true that if we but see phenomena, and our mental capacities deny us a conception of the reality beyond phenomena, yet we have a growing knowledge of the laws that govern these phenomena. And it is a comprehensive knowledge of these invariable laws that govern the universe that are of universal value. These laws have been ascertained by the questioning mental attitude, and not by futile reliance on faith. Human knowledge has expanded immensely in the last fifty years, and this by the purely scientific method, the materialistic method, and the questioning attitude. The value of these findings, when they can be converted into practical applications in industry, are well known to all. We have added nothing to our store of knowledge except by the exercise of our mentality and reason. The application of the scientific method to the workings of the mind has made more progress in explaining the mind in the brief period of fifty years than philosophical deductions had made in the past two thousand years.
Every new fact that has been discovered has fitted into the mechanistic scheme of the universe, and not one new fact has been disclosed that suggested anything beyond nature. The theistic interpretation of the universe has been completely discredited by the scientific investigations. Science has brought to the confines of invariable laws multitudes of problems that had hitherto been supposed to point to spiritual interference. Theology has been driven out of the open spaces of reason and still persists in clinging to the twilight zone of the present unknown only to be driven from its precarious position constantly by our increasing knowledge and with increasing rapidity from shadow to shadow. There has been an increasing tendency shown by physicists to consider that matter and energy are interchangeable, and that the one ultimate reality is energy. If this be so, we are still dealing with an ultimate that is a material reality. The Nobel Prize in Medicine for the year 1932 was awarded to two British investigators, Sir Charles Scott Sherrington, Professor of Physiology at Oxford University, and Dr. Edgar Douglas Adrian, Professor of Physiology at Cambridge University. Their researches seem to have settled definitely a problem that has long been a bone for contention. Nerve energy has been shown conclusively to be of an electric type of energy. The old question of whether mind was part of the material world has been shown by these experiments to be answered in the affirmative. There is no duality, mind and matter are one, and mind is but a special property of highly specialized matter. End of Part 1 of Chapter 19 Part 2 of Chapter 19 of The Necessity of Atheism The Doom of Religion, The Necessity of Atheism It is with a great deal of regret that the freethinker contemplates the attitude of such scientists as Jeans, Eddington, Millikan, and the philosopher Professor Whitehead. Their hesitation to divorce themselves completely from all conceptions of a supernatural force leads to a great deal of confusion. An acquaintance with the writings of Einstein brings one the certainty that he is as much in accordance with the attitude of free thought as is the most militant atheist. The cosmic sense and totality of existence of Einstein is as far removed from the conception of a Yahweh as is the mentality of an Australian black man from that of Einstein's mental grasp. Similarly with the cosmic consciousness expressed in the writings of Jeans, Eddington, and Whitehead. With characteristic disregard for the truth, certain modern theologians have grasped this cringing attitude of the above-mentioned men and have stressed their viewpoints by a dishonest interpretation that these men actually give a scientific certitude to their own theologic creeds and dogmas. Nothing can be further from the truth. The free thinker would have each theologian who tells his adherents that these men lend credence to their beliefs to consider the following. If the above-named men would be asked if they believed in a deity who actively interposed his will and influence in the lives of men, as is commonly expressed in the term providence, 
if they ascribed to the belief in personal immortality, if they themselves believed in the existence of a soul, if they ascribed to the statement that prayer influenced the opinion of an all-powerful being to intercede for them in their problems and grief, if they believed that the Bible was a book dictated by God, or that a God caused to be written for him his revelations, that heaven and hell exist in the meaning that theologians assure their adherents that they do, that man and morality is what theologians still hold it to be, that there has been a fall and therefore the necessity for a redemption of man, and that creed and dogma are necessary factors in the worship of a deity, what would their answers be? Eddington, Jeans, Einstein, and Whitehead would answer these questions exactly as would the most militant atheists. The mental attitude of these men can best be explained when one considers certain similarities between theological asceticism and scientific asceticism. And it is the duty of the free thinker clearly to point out why this confusion has arisen. During the ages of faith, the world beheld a swarm of men and women who retired from the grim realities of a world which at that time was made abhorrent to all sensitive men by the most exacting insistence of theologians that faith was the all-necessary ingredient of life and that closed its eyes completely to the degrading actualities of life that this insistence led to. Multitudes of men retired to the desert and to the protective walls of monasteries, there, by constant privations, fastings, continual prayer, flagellation, and introspection, they spent their lives. These ascetic individuals, by these means, were enabled to enter what may be called a theologic trance, and their subsequent hallucinations, illusions, and delusions gave to them what they deemed to be a transcendental insight into the construction of the universe and what was expected between fallen and debased man and his omnipotent creator. These men keenly apprehended what some today in a gentler age have called cosmic consciousness. I do not mean to imply that these before-mentioned scientists have applied such a rigor to their lives. What is meant to be stated is that these men, by their research and comprehension of the vastness of the universe, stand in awe and fear before this brain-benumbing aspect. Modern astrophysics, to one who attempts to comprehend its vastness, imposes on the mind but a faint comprehension of the vastness of the universe in space, time, and size, but imposes a deep conviction of the infinitesimal meaning of our planet Earth, both as to size and its relation to the millions of related heavenly bodies. The evolution of man on our planet, in this broad conception of space and time, is most infinitesimal, it has been just a few hours ago, in this widened conception of time, that Halley's Comet was excommunicated from the skies by Pope Calixitus III, who looked upon this comet as one of unheard of magnitude, and from the tail of which was flung down upon earth disease, pestilence, and war. 
Most certainly the minds of Jeans and Eddington carry in their recesses a vast amount of knowledge that was not common to men living in 1456, the year in which the above-mentioned comet caused such consternation. Much as one admires the superiority of the minds of these present-day physicists, yet one cannot help but think that if our present rate of progress meets no serious obstacle, then in another five hundred years the attitude of awe of genes and Eddington towards the vastness of our universe will be held in some similar position to which genes and Eddington now hold the misguided conception of Halley's Comet in the year 1456. The mind of man is just beginning to emerge from its swaddling clothes, and we cannot assume to judge what its broadest capabilities may be. Certain great modern minds, therefore, when they contemplate this vastness of astrophysics, are apt to dwell a bit too literally on the music of the heavenly spheres, and under the influence of these celestial harmonies fall into the trance of scientific asceticism. Men who can no longer seriously hold to a belief in an anthropomorphic god, the soul, and immortality, are apt to allow themselves, when in this mood, to emotionalize their knowledge. And these same men are the ones who would in their scientific endeavors be the first to eliminate all emotions from their reasoning efforts in their laboratories. One seems justified, therefore, in stating that this conception of cosmic consciousness is but another instance of the mere illusions of a craving heart. Discussing the question as to whether science and religion conflict, the physicist Professor Bazzoni of the University of Pennsylvania, in a recent work, Energy and Matter, makes the following pointed comment. Some scientists resort to metaphysics and make contact with a kind of mysticism which may be taken for a religious belief at precisely that point where ignorance prevents further progress along sound scientific lines. The primitive medicine man appealed to the gods to explain the precipitation of rain and the phase changes of the moon and some modern scientists appeal to metaphysics and mysticism to explain the limits of the infinite and the nature of electricity. He further cautions theologians against placing undue emphasis on the opinions of scientists when they express their minds on religious topics, and he remarks, They, the laity, should realize that in the spiritual field the opinion of an eminent scientist has exactly the same weight as the opinion of any other cultivated and thoughtful individual. When the scientist examines with the impartial mind of the laboratory the science of the origin of religious beliefs and delves into the complicated intricacies of religious history, he becomes as convinced as any other thoughtful individual that the facts of science and history are deadly to religion. Moreover, as man contemplates the construction and forces at work in the universe, he still must exclaim, end, beginning, or purpose it knows not of. The theologians are devoting a great deal of their time to the writings of physicists who venture into the field of theology. It may be that in this manner they can divert attention from the drastic findings concerning all religious beliefs that the anthropologists and psychologists are patiently accumulating. Many physicists and biologists like Pupin, 
Millican, Oliver Lodge, J. Arthur Thompson, and Henry Fairfield Osborne have recently blossomed forth as liberal theologians. They are still emotionally attached to the older religious faith. They are aware that modern physics and biology have abandoned doctrines that once were hostile to religious claims. They, therefore, proclaim that there is no further conflict between religion and science. In so doing, however, they show themselves abysmally ignorant of all that anthropology and psychology have done to study religion and religious man scientifically. They show their ignorance of the philosophy that has built upon such data. They do not realize that the present-day conflict between religious faith and science is no longer with a scientific explanation of the world, but with a scientific explanation of religion. J. H. Randall and J. H. Randall, Jr. Religion and the Modern World the cultured Greeks and Romans had their omnipotent gods, and these have long ago died a death of ridicule. At a time when beauty and sculpture were at their height, the religion of these ancient artists was absurd. Similarly, with some of our modern scientists, their religion has not kept pace with their intellect. Their emotions have overbalanced their reason in this field. Professor H. Levy of the University of London tersely remarks, The assertion of contemporary scientists who state that the universe is a fickle collection of indeterminate happenings, and a great thought in the mind of its architect, a pure mathematician, serves merely to divert the activity of the scientific brain from its concentration on the contradictions and confusions of the all-too-real outward world, to a state of passive and unreal contemplation. Professor H. Levy, The Universe of Science Among the theologians, some at least have learned the futility of waxing indignant at each new scientific hypothesis that encroached, as they thought, within their domain. A great many liberal theologians have as yet not learned the extreme danger to their theology in grasping at some concept of science that for the present moment does not appear to be detrimental to their theology, or, as they think, seems to bolster up their particular creed. The enthusiasm aroused in certain theological circles by recent developments in mathematical physics, states Dr. M. C. Otto, seems to me to indicate just one thing, that these theologians felt themselves to be in so desperate a state that a floating straw assumed the appearance of a verdure-clad island. I am of the opinion that all persons who work for a more decent and happy existence for themselves and for their fellows must turn their backs upon religion just to the extent that religious leadership seeks spiritual renewal in these hallucinations of despair. Doctors Wieman, Mackintosh, and Otto. Is there a God? It is only proper to point out that what certain emancipated minds are trying to reconstruct as a basis of religious belief is not what is held by the masses as their conception of religion. In a recent clear and frank statement of the religious revolution, John Herman Randall and John Herman Randall, Jr. state, such beliefs, 
even so fundamental a one as belief in God, must stand their chances with the philosophic interpretation men give their experience. The really revolutionary effect of the scientific faith, so far as religion is concerned, has been not its new view of the world, but its new view of religion. Reinterpretations of religious belief have been unimportant compared with reinterpretations of religion itself. For those who have come to share the scientific world view, even more for those who have absorbed the spirit of scientific inquiry, it has been impossible to view religion as a divine revelation entrusted to man. It has even been impossible to see it as a relation between man and a cosmic deity. Religion has rather appeared a human enterprise, an organization of human life, an experience, a social bond, and an inspiration. J. H. Randall and J. H. Randall, Jr. Religion and the Modern World To the man who literally entreats his deity, Our Father, who art in heaven, grant us our daily bread, the above reinterpretation of what is meant by religion can have no meaning. To the cultivated mind that comprehends what is meant, the above interpretation is what he conceives of as his social secular activities for the betterment of his fellow men. A living philosophy of life is a much better name for this attitude than is the misnomer religion, and avoids a great deal of confusion. Some of our scientists on a holiday, as they have been facetiously called when they stepped into a field in which they had not become well acquainted with the ground, have proceeded to lend assurance that God is, by subtracting so drastically from what is generally attributed to the conception of God, that there is nothing much left to what they conceive as what God means. They have stripped the conception of what has been heretofore regarded as fundamental, namely the conception that God is a superhuman personality or mind. In Mr. Whitehead's philosophy, God is spoken of as... God is not concrete, but he is the ground for concrete actuality. I believe such confusion of language may have been in the mind of Dr. Max Carl Otto when he remarked, Some persons endeavor more than ever to make necessary distinctions to keep meanings as clear as possible, and to have an eye on the tendency of language to become its own object. Other persons repudiate these obligations. They act as if it were a virtue to love darkness rather than light, if your intentions are good. Under their manipulations, conceptions are dimmed or replaced by vague imitations. One boundary line after another is obliterated until the whole substance of things swims in mists. History has illustrated that the greatest source of evil on this planet has arisen from the fact that physical phenomena for which our limited mental capacities were not able to formulate a logical solution were ascribed to preternatural causes. From this original stem arose religion and the church, the two greatest obstacles which have been a burden to mankind for two thousand years and a barrier to all progress which has made life endurable and desirable. The lower man is in the scale of civilization, the more does he call in the supernatural to explain all the happenings and experiences of his life.
When he had been beset by an intellectual failure, he had been thrown back to religion. Lacking the courage and mental capacity to proceed further against obstacles, he succumbed to the drug of religious explanations. The need was not for a narcotic, but for a stimulant. The mental stimulant was provided for man in the form of science. Science is but organized knowledge, and it is this knowledge that has elevated man to the position where he is now, his own God. When difficulties confront him in this age, he blames them upon his own ignorance and incompetence. And when he sets about to overcome these difficulties, he does not rely on divine revelation or supernatural aid or on miracles. He relies on his reason. He knows that when a problem eludes his mental capacity, it is not the supernatural which eludes him, but some natural force, some law which he has not been able to grasp as yet. There is no resignation in this attitude, only resolute, peaceful patience. The problem that he cannot solve at present will yield to his reason eventually. The ecclesiastic is well aware that science is his natural and implacable enemy. He knows that every time the bounds of exact knowledge are widened, the domain of religion is narrowed. Man's knowledge of the universe is still incomplete, but it is certainly more complete than it was fifty years ago. And when we consider what that knowledge was a few thousand years ago, it is no breach of logic to state that all natural processes in the course of time will be brought into the confines of invariable laws. Sir Arthur Keith clearly states, The ancient seeker, to explain the kingdom of life with man as its regent, had to call in the miracle of creation. The modern seeker finds that although life has the appearance of the miraculous, yet all its manifestations can be studied and measured, and that there is a machinery at work in every living thing which shapes, evolves, and creates. His inquiries have led him to replace the miracle of creation by the laws of evolution. Whichever department of the realm of nature the man of science has chosen for investigation, the result has always been the same. The supernatural has given place to the natural. Superstition is succeeded by reason. The world has never had such armies of truth-seekers as it now has. Those equipped with ladders of science have so often scaled the walls which surround cities of ignorance that they march forward in the sure faith that none of nature's embattlements are impregnable. In the last analysis, if we reach a point in thinking where we cannot proceed further, a fathomless landmark, must we revert to the theological error of thinking and assume it must be of supernatural character? Because the unknown in the past has been assigned to the supernatural is no indication for us also in the present age to relegate the unknown to divine cause. It is unseemly that minds that have emancipated themselves should go just so far, as far as their own reason can explain the unknown, and when their limited reason can go no further, to revert back to the primitive stage where solution is considered impossible to man, save it be revealed to him by God. If man's mind is free, 
if no coercion of any kind is placed on its exercise, it will expand and unravel what at present is still fathomless. Give man endless centuries and ample opportunities, and he will unravel the miracles of development and growth, just as he has done other miracles, which at first seemed impossible of rational solution. For how much longer will man be a slave to his inferiority complex with regard to his own rational capacities? If faith is vital to man, why not relate it to that which at least holds a promise of solution? Man's mind has not as yet arrived at the point which might even give the slightest indication of its ultimate exhaustion. We cannot assume the knowledge of what man's fullest capacities are. All things must unravel themselves with the progress of his mind. Those things which he cannot explain now, he must not assign to a superhuman force. Man must use his reasoning faculties to investigate and search for the truth, so that these unknown may become part of the known. Again to quote Sir Arthur Keith, Only eighty years have come and gone since the anatomist obtained his first glimpse of the structural complexity of the human brain. It will take him 8,000 years and more to find out the exact part played by every departmental unit of this colossal system of government, which carries on the mental life of a human being. We have no reason to think there is anything supernatural in its manifestation. As our knowledge of the brain accumulates, the names and terms we now use will give place to others which have a more precise meaning. In our present state of ignorance, we have to use familiar and loose terms to explain the workings of the brain. Such words as soul, spirit, heart, superstition, and prejudice. These manifestations of the mind will be dissected and made understandable. Science has as yet not fully explained the origin of life on earth but there is reason to believe that it will do so in the future. The laws governing the production of life itself are under investigation in the laboratories, and it is highly probable that this law will be unraveled at some future date. It will be interesting for our posterity to witness the confusion of the ecclesiastics and their attempted confirmation of this fact in the Bible their finding of some obscure phrase that will be interpreted by them as a prediction of the fact in the Bible. The theists have maintained, as we have seen, many false beliefs that have cost the lives of innumerable men, and suffering incalculable, beliefs which they themselves have subsequently recognized as false, but relinquished only by the onslaught of rising secular knowledge. It was the ecclesiastic who pointed to the God-dictated phrase, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, and the various precepts that have been enumerated in the preceding chapters. Surely sufficient evidence has been noted to convince a thinking being that reason is a better guide than theism. Belief in the antithesis of reason. Reason is rationality. Religious belief is clearly mental abnormality. If a religionist is asked what he thinks of a secular institution which vigorously condemns and persecutes inquiry, experiment, and truth, he will reply with the logical answer. 
When it is pointed out to him that religion has done and still is doing this, he will hem and haw until he manufactures some illogical answer. It has been stated that the more we think, the less we believe, and that the less we think, the more we believe. The Christian will analyze the creed of the Mohammedan and find it ridiculous. The Mohammedan analyzes the creed of the Christian and in turn finds it ridiculous. That is thinking. But does the Mohammedan or the Christian analyze as critically each his own belief? Will he endeavor to analyze it at all? That is believing. The ecclesiastic concerns himself not with truth or knowledge. It is creed which is his shrine. He definitely is at war with knowledge, and he wants to learn only such things as fit in with his preconceived notions and prejudices. When the minds of men are from infancy perverted with these ideals, how can mankind build a virile race? It is often asserted that the alleged universality of the belief in God is an argument for its truth. But what of the fact that men had everywhere come to the conclusion that the earth was flat, and yet a wider and truer knowledge proved that universal belief to be false? In the discussion of witchcraft, it has been shown that a delusion may be as widespread as a truth. During the 10th and 11th centuries, the Spanish Moors had recognized the sphericity of the earth and were teaching geography from globes in their common schools. Rome, during the same ages, was asserting in all its absurdity the flatness of the earth. It was not until almost five hundred years later that Rome was forced to see its absurdity, and then only when the enlightened world mocked at its error. In this twentieth century, certain enlightened men are teaching the absurdity and harmfulness of a belief in a deity. Must it take five hundred years for all mankind to come to a similar conclusion? May it not well be that in a few centuries our posterity will view belief in a deity in the same light that we in this age view the church's inconsistence that the earth was flat? The God idea has been one of the most divisive and antisocial notions cherished by mankind. In fact, it has been asserted that the idea of God has been the enemy of man. It has driven multitudes of men and women into the unnatural asceticisms and wasted lives of the convent and abbey. It has taxed the economic resources of every nation. Every church, no matter of what creed, is a pathetic monument of God-ridden humanity which has been built by the pennies sweated by the poor and wrested from them by fraudulent promises of reward, appeals to fear, and the pathetic human tendency to sacrifice. The theologians have in their arguments resorted to philosophy. The consequence of this transference of the idea of God to the sphere of philosophy is the curious position that the God in which people believe is not the God whose existence is made the product of an experimental argument, and the God of the argument is not the God of belief. It is a nice question, remarks Walter Lippmann, whether the use of God's name is not misleading when it is applied by modernists to ideas so remote from the God men have worshipped. 
Plainly the modernist churchman does not believe in the God of Genesis who walked in the garden in the cool of the evening and called for Adam and his wife who had hidden themselves behind a tree, nor in the God of Exodus who appeared to Moses and Aaron and seventy of the elders of Israel, standing with his feet upon a paved walk as if it were a sapphire stone, nor even in the God of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, who in his compassion for the sheep who had gone astray, having turned every one to his own way, laid upon the man of sorrows the iniquity of us all. Walter Lippmann, A Preface to Morals It is one kind of God that is being set up in argument, and it is really another God that is being depended upon and believed. The philosophical conception of a deity that may be in control of phenomena is an impersonal physical law, and has nothing to do with the conception of a personal deity to whom people pray for active intervention in their troubles. Religious belief is a monstrous apparition. The philosophy of atheism is a solid structure laboriously founded on solid rock. The philosophy of atheism had temporarily failed in previous ages since the knowledge of those ages did not furnish facts enough upon which to build. At the present, although our knowledge is far from complete and the surface has only been scratched, yet sufficient facts have been unearthed to reveal that there is no supernatural and the greatest hope of advancement lies in the philosophy of atheism. A philosophy that builds upon a foundation of purely secular thought, that leaves the idea of God completely discarded as a useless and false relic of bygone days, is the essence of atheism. Atheism is more than the speculative philosophy of a few, that it is, in sober truth, the logical outcome of mental growth. So far as any phase of human life can be called inevitable, Atheism may lay claim to being inescapable. All mental growth can be seen leading to it, just as we can see one stage of social development giving a logical starting point for another stage, and which could have been foretold had our knowledge of all the forces in operation been precise enough. Atheism is, so to speak, implicit in the growth of knowledge, its complete expression is the consummation of a process that began with the first questionings of religion. And the completion of the process means the death of supernaturalisms in all forms. Circumstances may obstruct its universal acceptance as a reasoned mental attitude, but that merely delays. It does not destroy the certainty of its final triumph. Chapman Cohen the philosophy of atheism leads man to a critical, analytical, and logical examination of his environment. And it is this that has led to all of our advances. Religion creates a stunted standard of reasoning. The pathetic cry of St. Augustine, But if I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, where, I pray thee, O my God, where, Lord, or when was I thy servant innocent, typifies the major concern of the narrow, egotistical mystic. 
From the time that the ideas of the later Greek philosophers had been forgotten until the present time, man has floundered in a sea of supernaturalism. It is high time that man faced his realities with fortitude in his own mentality. And when he does this, there will be produced a race of men who will seek for truth, for truth's sake, a race of supermen who will lead the world intellectually. It is to Russia that all eyes will turn in the next few generations. At the present, she is going through the throes of childbirth. She is immature, and as a child she staggers. The abuse and ridicule heaped upon her now is but the repetition of that given by all frightened societies of past ages, when they contemplated new ideas which their immature minds could not fathom. But Russia will emerge in the not-too-distant future, and the infant will shortly reach maturity, and that maturity may set a standard for those timid and frightened societies that at present look with dilated eyes upon her daring. The age is approaching when the god idea in its entirety will be classed with the gods of the Egyptians and Babylonians, when surplices and sacramental plate will be exhibited in museums, when nurses will relate to children the legends of the Christian mythology, as they now tell them fairy tales. The gods of monotheism will join the gods of polytheism, and Yahweh and his associates will occupy in the minds of men the position now held by the gods of Olympus. To our ancestors, Jupiter and Yahweh will have the same significance. In a little time, the cathedrals and churches will have taken upon themselves the proud, poetical glamour of abandoned temples. Men and women will enter them with reverent indulgence as they now in meditative mood visit the few remaining pantheons of the pagan worship. Cluellen Powys, An Hour on Christianity the age is approaching when the current idea of the hereafter will be accounted a strange and selfish idea, just as we smile at the savage chief who believes that his station will be continued in the world beneath the ground, and that he will there be attended by his concubines and slaves. The age is fast approaching when love, not fear, will unite the human race. In that age, the ideal, not the idol, will be the truth, and the one faith, not religion, but a sincere and lofty conception of the dignity and resourcefulness of the human mind, and an overwhelming desire to aid in the progress of all mankind, the extinction of disease, the perfection of genius, the perfection of love, and therefore the abolition of war, the exploration of the infinite, and the conquest of creation. Such an age can never come to be during the maljurisdiction of a theistic philosophy. It can only come into being when the vast majority of men are by the force of advancing knowledge made aware of the truth of the atheistic philosophy. An English observer, C. E. M. Jode, remarks, the churches, no doubt, will continue to function for a time, but they will be attended increasingly and in the end exclusively by ignorant men, women, and children. Already, 
a stranger attending an average Church of England service would almost be justified in assuming that the churches, like theater matinees, were kept up for the benefit of women and children. So far as present indications go, it seems not unlikely that science will deliver the coup de grace to organized Christianity within the next hundred years. We have caught a glimpse of what theism has done, and what the philosophy of atheism might have done and will yet achieve. Has man profited by having remained in his mental infancy so long? Atheism is an emancipating system of thought that frees the mind from myths, fables, and childish fancies. There can be no inquisition, no witchcraft delusion, no religious wars, no persecutions of one sect by another, no impediment to science and progress, no stultification of the mind as a result of its teachings. The philosophy of atheism teaches man to stand on his own feet, instills confidence in his reasoning powers, and forces him to conquer his environment. It teaches him not to subject himself and debase himself before mythical superhuman powers, for his reason is his power. The march from faith to reason is the march on which dwells the future hope of a really civilized mankind. Atheism teaches man to endeavor constantly to better his own condition and that of all his fellow men, to make his children wiser and happier. It supplies the powerful urge to add something new to the knowledge of mankind. And all this, not in the vain hope of being rewarded in another world, but from a pure sense of duty as a citizen of nature, as a patriot of the planet on which he dwells. There is no cold and cheerless philosophy. It is an elevating and ennobling ideal which may console him in his afflictions and teach him how to live and how to die. It is a self-reliant philosophy that makes a man intellectually free, and this mental emancipation allows him to face the world without fear of ghosts and gods. It relates solely to facts while theism resorts to opinions that are grounded only upon emotionalism. Joseph Lewis has well noted that atheism does not believe that man's mission on earth is to love and glorify God, but it does believe in living this life so that when you pass on, the world will be better for your having lived. The history of the past ages informs us what the world was like with God. The progress of secular knowledge and science have given us measures by which we could produce a better society than has ever existed under the obstructionism of the gods. The knowledge exists by which universal happiness can be secured. The chief obstacle to its utilization for that purpose is the teaching of religion. Religion prevents our children from having a rational education. Religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from teaching the ethics of scientific cooperation in place of the old fierce doctrines of sin and punishment. It is possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age. But if so, it will be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door. 
and this dragon is religion. Bertrand Russell It is interesting to contemplate the changes that may occur in our civilization in the next few centuries. On the one hand, we have that long period of sterile time, 15,000 years, for the stage of Neolithic man, and on the other, the vast material progress of the past 300 years. We may not be able to discern with clarity in what direction changes will occur, but in one aspect we can discern a well-marked tendency. That is the inevitable conquest of the philosophy of atheism. And with this conquest can be clearly seen that it would give to this earth a much sounder foundation upon which to build our progress, and that long-delayed freedom, the emancipation of the mind from all myths and fables. The inevitableness of atheism has been well summed up by Chapman Cohen. Looking at the whole course of human history, and noting how the vilest and most ruinous practices have been ever associated with religion, and have ever relied upon religion for support, the cause for speculation is not what will happen to the world when religion dies out, but how human society has managed to flourish while the belief in the gods ruled. Substantially, we have by searching found out God. We know the origin and history of one of the greatest delusions that ever possessed the human mind. God has been found out. Analytically and synthetically, we understand the God idea as previous generations could not understand it. It has been explained, and the logical consequence of the explanation is atheism. Man is fast attaining a mastery of his environment, and his religious creeds are becoming as irrational to him as the witchcraft delusion. Religion, with its burden of fear, ties him to the dead ages. But knowledge not only supplies him with power, but also furnishes him with courage, and that courage will aid him in freeing himself from that fear. Religion. Religion is doomed to occupy the same place in history as the institution of slavery. Lies and imposture, no matter how powerfully sustained, can be dispelled by knowledge. The church will destroy itself with its own poison. Knowledge and courage spell the doom of religion. End of Part 2 of Chapter 19 Chapter 20 of The Necessity of Atheism Contemporary Opinion The Vanguard Let us make no mistake, great minds are skeptical. The strength and the freedom which arise from exceptional power of thought express themselves in skepticism. A mind which aspires to great things and is determined to achieve them is of necessity skeptical. Nietzsche. Bertrand Russell. My own view on religion is that of Lucretius. I regard it as a disease born of fear, and as a source of untold misery to the human race. I cannot, however, deny that it has made some contributions to civilization. It helped in early days to fix the calendar and it caused Egyptian priests to chronicle eclipses with such care that in time they became able to predict them. 
These two services I am prepared to acknowledge, but I do not know of any others. Max Carl Otto It is my conviction that the happiest and noblest life attainable by men and women is jeopardized by reliance upon a superhuman cosmic being for guidance and help. I know, of course, that God has been defined in various terms. I do not choose among them, for it seems to me indisputable that those who turn to God, however God be defined, do so because, consciously or unconsciously, they seek there the satisfaction of wants, the worth of living, and security for what they passionately prize, which they have not found and despair of finding in the human venture as they know it. Reliance upon God for what life does not afford has, in my opinion, harmful consequences. It diverts attention from the specific conditions upon which a better or a worse life depends. It leads men to regard themselves as spectators of a course of events which they in reality help to determine. It makes the highest human excellence consist in acquiescence in the supposed will of a being that is defined as not human, a being that is above the driving force of impulse, that does not experience vacillating moods or conflicting desires, that is never harassed by doubts or misled by ignorance. Theism is in essence repressive, prohibitory, ascetic, the outcome of its influence is that expertness in practical living and expertness in evaluating life, instead of uniting to take advantage of a common opportunity, are set against each other. This is the profound dualism which remains to be mastered. It can be mastered by the concentration upon human needs and powers. John Dewey The method we term scientific forms for the modern man, and a man is not modern merely because he lives in 1931, the sole dependable means of disclosing the realities of existence. It is the sole authentic mode of revelation. This possession of a new method, to the use of which no limits can be put, signifies a new idea of the nature and possibilities of experience. It imports a new morale of confidence, control, and security. C. E. M. Jode All through the century, 19th, whenever and wherever there is a movement for change and betterment, the clergy are found opposing it. In this, they are merely carrying on the tradition of their order. When one looks back over history, one realizes that there is scarcely any discovery which science has made for human advancement and happiness, which churchmen and theologians have not violently opposed. Not content with burning each other, they burnt the men who discovered the earth's motion, burnt the men who made the first tentative beginnings of physics and chemistry, burnt the men who laid the foundations of our medical knowledge, Bad as has been the church's record in the past, it has not greatly improved in the present. For two thousand years, teachers and preachers have striven, by inculating the principles and precepts of Christianity, to mold men's character and to improve their conduct. Yet we still have our prisons, our judges, and our wars. 
and it remains today as it has done for two thousand years past. An arguable question whether men are better or worse than they were before Christianity was introduced. William Pepperell Montague If we will for a moment imagine the Bible to have come suddenly to our attention today, unencumbered by a tradition of divine authority and with no more sacredness than a newly discovered writing of ancient China or Egypt, we can see quite readily that it would occur to nobody who took the work merely on its merits either to accept it as scientifically or historically true, or to twist its statements into a far-fetched allegory of the truth. Religion will be outmoded, and its tidings of escape to another and better world will ring cold in the ears of those who love this. The new worldliness that religion must face is based on the faith that there is not only no place for heaven, but no need for it. Humanity, adolescent at last, has tasted the first fruits of the victory of secular intelligence over nature, and dreams grandly of far greater victories to come. Erwin Edmund The hope of the world certainly lies in intelligence. Certainly there is no hope anywhere else. I cannot look to anything so remotely definable as God for aid, nor do I ever regret not being able to do so. Walter Lippmann Many reasons have been adduced to explain why people do not go to church as much as they once did. Surely the most important reason is that they are not so certain that they are going to meet God when they go to church. If they had that certainty, they would go. If they really believed that they were being watched by a supreme being who is more powerful than all the kings of the earth put together, if they really believed that not only their actions but their secret thoughts were known and would be remembered by the Creator and ultimate judge of the universe, there would be no complaint whatever about church attendance. The most worldly would be in the front pews, and preachers would not have to resort so often to their rather desperate expedients to attract an audience. If the conviction were there that the creed professed was invincibly true, the modern congregation would not come to church as they usually do today to hear the preacher and to listen to the music. They would come to worship God. H. L. Mencken Alone among the great nations of history, we have got rid of religion as a serious scourge, and by the simple process of reducing it to a petty nuisance. For men become civilized, not in proportion to their willingness to believe, but in proportion to their readiness to doubt. The more stupid the man, the larger his stock of adamantine assurances, the heavier his load of faith. When Copernicus proved that the earth revolved around the sun, he did not simply prove that the earth revolved around the sun. He also proved that the so-called revelation of God, as contained in the Old Testament, was rubbish. The first fact was relatively trivial. It made no difference to the average man then, as it makes no difference to him today. But the second fact was of stupendous importance. 
for it disposed at one stroke of a mass of bogus facts that had been choking the intelligence and retarding the progress of humanity for a millennium and a half. I believe that religion, generally speaking, has been a curse to mankind, that its modest and greatly overestimated services on the ethical side have been more than overborne by the damage it has done to clear and honest thinking. Horace M. Callan. It is a significant trait of history that the times and nations most distinguished for piety are also most distinguished for backwardness. Tsarist Russia and contemporary Spain are near examples, but illustrations may be drawn from any part of the world. The southern states of the United States of America, for instance, Everywhere, the scope and intensity of belief in the supernatural seem to be directly proportional to the misery and weakness of the believer. One compensates for the other. Freedom of speech and of press and discussion, which means generally restraint of all interference in the amicable threshing out of conflicting opinions, means, with respect to religious beliefs, refraining from talking, writing, or discussing candidly at all. In every society, belief in the supernatural is privileged belief, and there accrue to it all the advantages and disadvantages of privilege. But mystics and religionists are not silent. On the contrary, they become, having passed through a religious experience, voluble. Albert Einstein I do not believe we can have any freedom at all in the philosophical sense, for we act not only under external compulsion, but also by inner necessity. I cannot imagine a God who rewards and punishes the objects of his creation, whose purposes are modeled after our own, a God, in short, who is but a reflection of human frailty. Neither can I believe that the individual survives the death of his body, although feeble souls harbor such thoughts through fear or ridiculous egotism. It is enough for me to contemplate the mystery of conscious life perpetuating itself through all eternity, to reflect upon the marvelous structure of the universe which we can dimly perceive, and to try humbly to comprehend even an infinitesimal part of the intelligence manifested in nature. Luther Burbank our lives as we live them are passed on to others, whether in physical or mental forms, tinging all future lives forever. This should be enough for one who lives for truth and service to his fellow passengers on the way. No avenging Jewish god, no satanic devil, no fiery hell is of any interest to him. The scientist is a lover of truth for the very love of truth itself wherever it may lead. Every normal human being has ideals, one or many, to look up to, to reach up to, to grow up to. Religion refers to the sentiments and feelings. Science refers to the demonstrated everyday laws of nature. Feelings are all right if one does not get drunk on them. Prayer may be elevating if combined with works and they who labor with head, hands, or feet have faith and are generally quite sure of an immediate and favorable reply. 
those who take refuge behind theological barbed wire fences quite often wish they could have more freedom of thought, but fear the change to the great ocean of scientific truth as they would a cold bath plunge. Sir Arthur Keith Certainly the creative power which is at work bears no resemblance to the personal God postulated by the Hebrews, and the modern man of science cannot fit him into the scheme of the world as he knows it. He has to try to reconceive God, and when he has done so, nothing but an unsatisfying abstraction is left. It is unsatisfying because even the greatest men of science, although they possess the intellects of giants, still have the hearts of children. And children cling to that which is endowed with a human shape and has been given the warmth of living flesh. H. Levy A structure of absolute moral and religious beliefs, erected initially as beyond criticism, imposed upon a changing society from above rather than emerging from below, has no affinity with science, whatever personal solace and comfort it may provide. For it assumes that the facts of life, including the material facts of the world, can be compassed within a rigidly prescribed framework. It has taken several centuries of history for the scientific movement to be emancipated from just these cramping human assumptions. The writings of many scientists show, alas, that the emancipation has not yet been completed. J. B. S. Haldane We know very little about what may be called the geography of the invisible world. The religions, if I may continue the metaphor, have covered the vacant spaces of its map with imaginary monsters. The philosophies have ruled them with equally imaginary parallels of latitude. But both have affirmed, in opposition to the so-called practical man, that the meaning of the visible world is to be found in the invisible. That has been the secret of their success. They have failed when they tried either to describe the details of the visible world or to dictate the details of conduct in it. The churches are half empty today because their creeds are full of obsolete science, and their ethical codes are suited to a social organization far simpler than that of today. Howard W. Haggard, M.D. When, in the fifth century, the Roman Empire fell at the hands of the barbarians, rational medicine ceased altogether in Europe. Although the Christian religion survived, the Christian theology of that time denied liberty of conscience and taught superstitions and dogma. It was bitterly hostile to the scientific spirit. All knowledge necessary to man's salvation, physical as well as spiritual, was to be found in the Bible as the Church interpreted the Bible. Since the teachings of the Church were supposed to be sufficient for all needs, there was no excuse for observations and experimental investigations. The inquisitive spirit was wholly suppressed. The rigorous methods of Greek logic were for many centuries lost from European civilization, and intelligent thought was replaced by revelation, speculation, tradition, and subservience to the written word of the Bible, to the writings of saints, and later, in medical matters, to the work of Galen. 
The theological beliefs of the time became the controlling influence in Western civilization. Harry Elmer Barnes There has never been any religious crisis of this kind before, and any attempt at exact comparisons with the past are here bound to be misleading and distorting. Even the extreme assailant of pagan religions, like Lucretius, had no basis for the critical attitude as the contemporary skeptic. The bitter attack of Lucretius upon supernatural religion was based mainly upon assumptions and intuitions, as incapable of proof at the time as were the most extreme pietistic views of his age. Today, the situation has been profoundly altered. Contemporary science, especially astrophysics, renders the whole set of assumptions underlying the anthropomorphic and geocentric supernaturalism of the past absolutely archaic and preposterous. Our scientific knowledge has undermined the most precious tales in the holy books of all peoples. The development of biblical criticism has discredited the dogma of direct revelation and unique nature of the Hebrew Bible. Textual scholarship has been equally devastating to the sacred scriptures which form the literary basis of the other world religions. It avails one nothing to deny these things, for they are actually undeniable. We must face the implied intellectual revolution honestly and see what is to be done about it. George Jean Nathan to be thoroughly religious, one must, I believe, be sorely disappointed. One's faith in God increases as one's faith in the world decreases. The happier the man, the farther he is from God. Rupert Hughes It is important that the truth be known. Is religion, is church membership a help to virtue? The careless will answer without hesitation, yes, of course. The statistics, when they are not smothered, cry no. Who she? On the basis of biological, sociological, and historical knowledge, we should recognize that the individual self is subject to death and decay. But the sum total of individual achievement, for better or for worse, lives on in the immortality of the larger self that to live for the sake of the species and posterity is religion of the highest kind, and that those religions which seek a future life, either in heaven or in the pure land, are selfish religions. Dr. Frankwood E. Williams In these difficult times, we are told that we should go to the temple, that we should get in touch with God. We do not need the temple. We do not need to get in touch with God. We need to get in touch with each other. William Floyd This Bible bears every evidence of being a book like every other book, conceived by man, written by man, altered by man, translated by man, printed by man. But, and this is where it differs from every other book, the Bible is swallowed by man and it has disagreed with him. Man has not digested it properly through lack of sufficient dissection of its parts. It has been taken with a spiritual sauce that has disguised its real flavor. 
Anything in the Bible, no matter how raw, is taken as God's food. It is used to demonstrate problems of diet which do not provide a balanced ration. It is accepted by the gullible, though contradicted by the revelations of geology, astronomy, anthropology, zoology, and biology. Taken as prescribed by the doctors of divinity, the Bible is a poisonous book. Clewellyn Powys The idea of an incarnation of God is absurd. Why should the human race think itself so superior to bees, ants, and elephants as to be put in this unique relation to its maker? Christians are like a council of frogs in a marsh, or a synod of worms on a dunghill, croaking and squeaking, for our sakes was the world created. Theodore Dreiser And why again, composed though we may be of this, that, and the other proton, electron, etc., etc., why should we not in some way be able to sense why we are as we are, assembled as we are of the same ultimate atoms, and doing as we do? Why? Good God, surely in the face of all this sense and aliveness and motion, and this and that, there should be some intimation of why. But no, none. Upton Sinclair It is a fact, the significance of which cannot be exaggerated, that the measure of the civilization which any nation has attained is the extent to which it has curtailed the power of institutionalized religion. There are a score of great religions in the world, each with scores or hundreds of sects, each with its priestly orders, its complicated creed and ritual, its heavens and hells. Each has its thousands or millions or hundreds of millions of true believers. Each damns all the others, with more or less heartiness, and each is a mighty fortress of graft. THE MIDDLE GUARD It is terrible to die of thirst at sea. Is it necessary that you should salt your truth, that it will no longer quench thirst? Nietzsche Alfred North Whitehead Indeed, history, down to the present day, is a melancholy record of the horrors which can attend religion. Human sacrifice, and in particular the slaughter of children, cannibalism, sensual orgies, abject superstition, hatred as between races, the maintenance of degrading customs, hysteria, bigotry, can all be laid at its charge. Religion is the last refuge of human savagery. Robert Andrews Millikan The anthropomorphic god of the ancient world the god of human passions, frailties, caprices, and whims is gone, and with him the old duty to propitiate him, so that he might be induced to treat you better than your neighbor. Can anyone question the advance that has been made in diminishing the prevalence of these medieval, essentially childish, and essentially selfish ideas? The new god is the god of law and order. The new duty to know that order and to get into harmony with it, to learn how to make the world a better place for mankind to live in, not merely how to save your individual soul. However, 
Once destroy our confidence in the principle of uniformity, our belief in the rule of law, and our effectiveness immediately disappears. Our method ceases to be dependable, and our laboratories become deserted. Albert C. Diefenbach The plain truth is, thousands upon thousands of men and women have gone out of the church. They take no stock in its obsolete teachings to which they once subscribed in order to become members. After great tribulation, they have made their declaration of religious independence. They have taken the right turn for their own salvation. The churches as a whole do not know that today there is a violent intellectual revolution among all people who think. The so-called theism that is embalmed in the old theology and is still preached is utterly defunct for many persons of this generation. Like it or not, that is a fact. Dr. Charles W. Eliot the creeds of the churches contain conceptions of God's nature and of his action toward the human race which are intolerable to the ethical mind of the 20th century. The conception of one being, human or divine, suffering, though innocent, for the sins of others, is revolting to the universal sense of justice and fair dealing. No school, no family, no court would punish the innocent when the guilty were known. This conception of God is hideous, cruel, insane, and no Christian church which tolerates it can be efficient in the promotion of human welfare and happiness. End of chapter 20 End of the Necessity of Atheism by Dr. David Marshall Brooks